Okay, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Dana Buckler Show. My name is Dana, and this is an episode that I, I have to be honest with you, I, I don't even know if I ever really thought I would get this far. You've seen it in the title. This is the 10th anniversary of this podcast. Uh, this podcast started out as How Is This Movie in 2013. In 2018, I rebranded the show to the Dana Buckler Show. I just want to start by saying that in early 2013, I started to listen to a podcast. I had discovered podcasts fairly recently around that time period. Being a big, passionate movie fan, fan I sort of gravitated to one particular podcast. And I listened to it every week. It was religion to me. It was something that I always listened to. It was something that the, the host, uh, I felt like I was sitting at a table having a conversation with him. And I think that's the power of a really good podcast is when you feel like you're in the room with the people having a conversation. It was this podcast that really made me say, okay, I, I want to give this a try. Looking back on it 10 years later, I remember uh, at the time I was working six days a week. I had one day off. It was a Sunday. I got all the equipment that I could find to record a podcast, begged people to do a show with me, recorded some episodes. And in one day I would record, edit, and release. And I remember being so passionate about that. And I remember right before I started this podcast, I sent an email, or maybe it was a Facebook message, I don't remember, to the host of uh, of the F This Movie podcast. And I said, hello, Patrick. I My name is Dane. I just want to let you know I'm a big fan of your show. And, and by the way, I'm going to start a podcast, and uh, hopefully someday you'll get an opportunity to listen to it. You know, throughout the 10 years, Patrick uh, has been a guest on my show a few times, and one of the main contributors to F This Movie, uh, one Mr. Adam Risky, has uh, graciously joined me numerous times over the uh, the past few years. So it's my my honor and my pleasure to welcome the podcast that inspired me to want to do a podcast. So for, for this 10th anniversary show, please welcome uh, my friends, Patrick Bromley and Adam Risky. Gentlemen, hello. Welcome. Hi. Hi. Hi, Dana. Thanks for having us. So nice what you said about about our show and everything. And um, yeah, I mean, I've always loved your, j just the way that you went about doing your show, but just to see the evolution from, you know, uh, film history episodes to you're your, a wonderful interviewer and then just the topics in between. It's awesome to see your growth over the 10 years too. Thank you. I appreciate that. And, and Patrick, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having us, Dana, and congratulations on 10 years. It is not easy to put out a podcast for 10 years, and most shows do not make it that long. So it is a testament to your, your professionalism and your creativity and your commitment and your passion and your drive that you continue to do this and put out a great show. So congratulations. It is a huge accomplishment. I really appreciate that. And and coming from you guys, that really does mean everything. I just want to start by saying, Patrick, you first did my show in May of 2016. So that was a little over six years ago. And wow. at that time, you know, F and, and by the way, I should point out that F this movie still going strong. It's still my <laughs> Wednesday morning up in the morning, cup of coffee, listening to the latest episode. But I, I wonder if we could talk just a little bit about 
you know, what's been going on with you? You, you did a show with me about three years ago when we were all through going through the lockdown. And I just kind of want to, I know you've been introducing films, the, you know, you're doing a lot of stuff, uh, you know, outside of the podcast. Can you talk just a little bit about that? Um, yeah, it's just, uh, I've been fortunate to hook up with a friend who works, uh, for a theater chain that's kind of local around here. And so we started a series called smash cut cinema where once a month, um, I program and host like kind of cultish movies late on Saturday nights. It's born out of this series that I've done for a number of years as a member of the Chicago Film Critics Association, where we host a a movie every month. Um, But it's been really fun to pick movies that like selfishly I want to see on the big screen, either again or for the first time and program those and hope that people will come out. And so far it's been, it's been pretty good. Adam has been to all of them because he's the most committed to smash cut cinema and he's the nicest person. Well, then this question is for both of you. And that's amazing. By the way, this question is for both of you, Patrick, you said that this is something that, you know, in some cases it would be seeing a movie on the big screen for the first time. So the question for both of you, was there a movie or has there been a movie that you have screened for smash cut cinema that you saw for the first time on a big screen? And did it give you a completely different appreciation for the film? I don't know if it gave me a new appreciation, but it was fun. I had never seen RoboCop on the big Ah. screen. And so RoboCop is probably one of my favorite movies anyway, but to see it on the big screen. And then I brought my son Charlie with me. And so I was kind of also watching it through his eyes and wondering like what does he make of all of robocop and does he get the satire and does he think it's as cool as i do so that one was a lot of fun that's a really interesting question because i i don't think i've even talked to patrick about this but um the ones that on paper i'm the most excited for are ones that i'm excited for but like the the thing that's great is there's been a couple that have snuck up on me i think my favorite smash cut we've that we that you've hosted is heavy metal because it was a discovery for me mm-hmm. and seeing it in a theater for the first time after decades literally of anticipation of one day i will watch it but i haven't watched it yet it kind of married something that i i love about your series patrick which is just that it's midnight movies two hours early <laughs> <laughs> right <laughs> and somebody who's in their 40s it's a gift to have that um (laughs) but uh yeah it just kind of had that special midnight movie feel but to answer your question more directly dana um i had never seen hard target in a theater i missed it when it had its original theatrical run and it doesn't play rep all that much which is a shame because van damme movies should be playing like daily in rep theaters in my humble opinion um but seeing that movie and seeing just a john woo action movie on uh, a big screen as compared to on your television screen really does make like a huge difference. It just shows you kind of what a master he is and how impressive his blocking is and the, the staging and the momentum and the editing and everything like that. So that was kind of like for an action movie junkie like me, just heaven that evening. Okay. Rapid fire question just came to my head right now. This is for both of you rank the following movies. Okay. Hard Target, Broken Arrow, Face Off, Mission Impossible 2. Go. I'm going to go Face Off, Hard Target, Mission Impossible 2, Broken Arrow. Okay. Okay. All right. Um, I'll go bottom to top. All right. Mission Impossible 2 is the least of the four. Then I will go Broken Arrow. I know I should say Hard Target, then Face Off is the best. 
if I got to flip it, I think my heart is with Hard Target first and then face off just slightly behind it, but they're both great movies. Hard Target was the first John Woo film that I saw in the theater. I remember it. 93, is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. okay. Uh, that was a life-changing moment. So sorry about that, gentlemen. Every once in a while, one of those rapid-fire questions are just going to come to my head. All right, so these were the top 10 movies of 2013. So, so number 10 was Thor the Dark World. Number nine was Man of Steel. Number eight was Gravity. Uh, okay, see, look at this. Now, listeners, I just, I just need to know because this is an audio-only show, and this was not planned. Yeah. As I said Thor the Dark World, Patrick held up what was clearly a collector's cup that you got when you saw Thor the Dark World. That's exactly Ten right. years. But I'm still drinking out of years later. I love that. I don't <laughs> like that movie at at all but i i like the cup the, the cup's great i have a lee daniels the butler popcorn <laughs> bucket so i i'll go get it i didn't know we were doing show and tell <laughs> this is why i wanted you guys on the show thank you number seven was monsters university number six was fast and furious six number five was the hunger games catching fire number four was the hobbit the decimate uh, desolation of smog Number three was Despicable Me 2. Number two was Iron Man 3. And number one was Frozen. Yikes. I say all this, and Patrick, not to put you on the spot, but I, I cannot recall your end of the year show for 2013. But if you can kind of remember what your favorite film of that year was. Dude, what came out in 2013? <laughs> well, those were the 10 most pop. Those were the 10 highest None grossing films. None of those films. were on my top 10 list. I know that. Patrick, I think you and I had the same movie as number one that year because you did you did a show on it. I was still doing my written article. I wasn't on the show yet. Okay. Um, we both had Wolf of Wall Street at number one. Oh, that would have been my number one. Yeah. 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 Okay. Awesome. Yeah. That's a, That was of these ten movies. Gravity was the one that I saw in the theater. I was like, that was that was interesting. That was interesting. Um, a lot of these I did not see, but. Gentlemen, the, one of the reasons why I want to have you on the show is because I have always trusted and respected your discussions when it comes to, you know, to borrow a line from, from Patrick and F this movie. Uh, when you guys have seen something good lately, I am I'm keenly tuned in to the, uh, the segment. Have you seen anything good lately? Adam, you were the one that brought up Mobland, the, uh, mm -hmm. the John Travolta film. I watched that right after you mentioned it, found a copy of it. I think I paid... $24 to rent the movie, had a great time, reached out to the director, had him on the show a couple weeks ago. Great discussion. So I, I love it when you guys do that segment. But for this show, for the 10th anniversary, what I wanted to do is I wanted to ask you guys, have you seen anything good lately over the past 10 years? And by that, I mean, I'd love for each of you to recommend a movie for starting with 2013 up to 2023. I'll start with you, Adam, and then we'll just, we'll go down the list. Okay. Um, so my pick for, so for all these years, I wanted to go with movies hmm. that I don't think the majority of film goers or movie fans have seen but is not so obscure that you need like a phd in a certain genre or whatever in order to enjoy it um so mine are more independents and kind of mid-level movies um so 2013 i picked uh the movie drinking buddies which is directed by joe swanberg um it's kind of one of his most polished movies he kind of was one of the the, the main mumblecore guys in the early 2000s. Um, 
And it's uh, an ensemble romantic comedy drama about people who work at a, um, a brewery. And uh, Olivia Wilde, Jake Johnson, Anna Kendrick, and Ron Livingston are all in it. Um, Jason Sudeikis has a small part. The director, Ty West, has a small part, a rare acting part for him. Um, and it's just like a really good relationship movie. It's a really good movie about somebody being in the friend zone and not knowing kind of how to navigate their feelings towards a friend and a coworker. It's like the things that you feel comfortable saying, the things you don't feel comfortable saying, because what if I confess my feelings and it ruins our friendship or it ruins our working relationship and stuff. So it's a real human um, story. It's something that I think a lot of people can identify with. It's, it's not always going for laughs. It's not broadly comedic, but it's often really funny. Um, and uh, it's resonant. It's something that's kind of stuck with me, even though I don't revisit it all the time. I can remember a lot about the movie and it makes me want to watch it anytime I think about it. So that is a film that I remember hearing about, but I've actually never seen it. So I've, I've, I've started the list. So nice. I'll have, I'll have some movies to watch this week. Patrick, you've seen drinking buddies, your thoughts on the film. I have. I haven't seen it since 2013, but I miss Joe Swanberg movies. Um, he was on a real run. You know, I, I haven't seen all of his early kind of mumblecore movies, but when he started working a little bit more with some like independent studios and casting movie stars, and he had a run of really interesting films. He did a, a series on Netflix that's kind of like an extended joe swanberg movie called easy and there's a whole storyline that's very similar to drinking buddies where they're like opening a microbrewery in a garage um and then he just kind of stopped he hasn't made anything for a while and it yeah. bums me out because drinking buddies is very charming it's it's like exactly the kind of movie i could put on anytime it's such a hangout movie with like these are characters that i like spending time with having conversations that are interesting uh, I'm into their relationships. I'm into their relationship struggles. I'm not, you know, into the world of like drinking or or microbrewery or anything like that. But it taught me something about that world, which I always appreciate when a movie teaches me about something that I don't really know. Yeah, it's a really it's a really cool movie. Awesome. Oh, perfect. Adam, way to kick things off. Yeah, and a couple of bonus recommendations for Joe Swanberg movies. The one, the movie that I because after Drinking Buddies, I was so excited about the next Joe Swanberg movie. And I think it was his very next one. It was called Happy Christmas. Um, it's with Melanie Linsky and Anna Kendrick. And Joe Swanberg stars in it too. And it's really, really good. And especially because it's a Christmas movie, I would recommend it for this season also. Okay, perfect. So Patrick, your 2013 pick. I did this wrong. I just like picked movies, yeah. but I'm looking at my list and I'm like, well, these are all movies that I would recommend. Yes. I, I initially just like picked stuff that I felt like talking about, but these yeah. are all movies I would recommend. Yeah, too. absolutely. My 2013 pick also features Ty West in a supporting role, and that is your next yeah. the slasher slash home invasion movie from Adam Wingard and Simon Barrett. Uh, Adam and I were fortunate enough to see this at like an early screening at a horror convention, and it's one of those few experiences of seeing a movie pre-hype pre-release where it legitimately felt like it blew the doors off where it really was like this is going to be huge and then it came out and it wasn't huge but it's really 
good. Um, and I think as the years go by, it only gets better in terms of like what it's doing with the horror genre, what it's doing with the trope of the final girl, what it's doing to the home invasion genre, a, a subgenre of horror. I do not like um, it brought back Barbara Crampton. It might still be Adam Wingard's best movie. I would need to look at his entire resume. I mean, the guest is really awesome too, mm -hmm. but uh, if I had a gun in my head, I might pick your next. Uh, it's, it's one of my favorite horror movies of the 2010s. I mean, if you had a gun to your head, like regarding <laughs> Henry's situation. Yes, exactly. If this was a, I would become a better person and I would recommend your next. Yeah. <laughs> I was listening to you guys talk about that. Talk about regarding Henry that, I haven't seen that since I saw it when it came out on home video. So this would have been the nineties. Didn't realize yeah. the JJ Abrams connection. Didn't, didn't even re remember that it was, um, uh, John Lugabzamo that, uh, was the one who, uh, committed the, uh, the crime against him when he was going to get a pack of cigarettes. I just remembered him painting. You the shouldn't smoke spawn. <laughs> <That's it. laughs> I read something where he said that uh, Leguizamo said he used to get so much hate mail at the beginning of his career because he was he, he in shot Harrison Henry. Ford and yeah. killed Al Pacino in a movie. <laughs> I'm sorry, baby. John Leguizamo shot me. I mean, did anybody did ever give him hate mail over the pest, or was it just his roles, <laughs> just his roles in those films? Uh, uh, you don't worry about the people who give you hate mail over the pest. You worry about people who write fan letters. <laughs> So, uh, sure I you got the restraining orders handy. <laughs> I, I uh, okay, so so uh, I've seen your next one time, and it's been it's been several years, and I just the the memories I have from it was I found it to be an incredibly enjoyable film. I I, I wish I could say more about it, but it was a film I've seen once, and it wasn't one that I was like, oh, I'll never watch that again. I was like, oh, that was great, that was cool. And just kind of moved on to something else. But Adam, your thoughts on on your next? Yeah, I mean, it was so exciting to see that movie in 2013. And um, as Patrick said, I'm not a fan of the home invasion subgenre. I have a big problem with it because I just don't want to feel the way that you're asked to identify with. Right, so I'm right. looking forward to Desperate Hours, I guess is what I'm saying. <laughs> um, which Patrick and I are going to watch as part of a future podcast. Um, but uh, I loved that it gives you a final girl to really root for. It basically turns into Die Hard and Home Alone. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's uh, it's great. I I find it, I don't know if it's me or if it's just kind of the way things are, but I feel like there was this sort of, marriage of mumblecore and horror that really like bore some like really cool movies for a couple of years and then i thought that it was going to be like this new wave of something and it never really continued it sort of kind of started and then stopped in a very brief amount of time but you're next and then drinking buddies kind of were like that was if we're talking about 2013 that's what i was most excited about in cinema in 2013 where i was just like there's all these new voices and different genres and stuff and um then the man of steels of the world kind of took <laughs> over. So, yeah i forgot i didn't even make the joe swanberg connection but he has a supporting role in your next and he's 
He's very good. Hilarious. He's so yeah. funny in that movie. Yeah. yeah. So you're Adam moving on to the year 2014 draft day. It's draft day. Oh, That's yeah. my pick. It's draft day. <laughs> Ivan Reitman. Those Ivan Reitman. RIP. RIP. Yeah. Yeah. yeah RIP. Uh, Vontae Mack. Mr. Chadwick Boseman. Vontae Mack, uh, no matter what. No matter what. Um, yeah. I, draft day is a movie that snuck up on me. It's uh, one of the things that I love about um, at this movie is just it allows me the space to come back to movies and be like, I don't know, that was okay. And then like two days later, I'm like, I don't know, I kind of thought it was maybe a little bit more than okay. And then like two weeks later, it's like, I don't know, I kind of feel like watching it again. And then like a month later, I'm like, it's a part of my my whole being now. (laughs) So um, I've had that happen several times. Draft Day is just like the perfect example of like the remote drop type of movie. Um, It just is like Moneyball is fun, but this is like fun in capital letters version of Moneyball. Um, Kevin Costner is at his like, primo movie star dick swagging like mode um i don't know it's such a kind of goofy version of representing the nfl but you know any given sunday was also and that movie is crazy entertaining too um but i i i find it interesting too and that's kind of it's only sort of been exacerbated this year especially but um draft day was one of the draft day and moneyball were kind of the first movies of the sports hero are not the heroes. The guys pulling the strings and the businessmen are the heroes. And um, now, you know, we've got air and things like that. And it's like making the deal is making you a hero and stuff like that. And I just find it so interesting um, in a weird way. I would say it's like a negative um, because it's more just the people capitalizing off of the talent than the actual talent. Um, But they make good movies and uh you get a lot of great performances out of them and uh yeah draft day is just super fun it it sort of and i'm embarrassed to say this it kind of got me back into football after a long period of time of not uh wanting to watch it all that much you know it helps that i live in the chicagoland area and the bears are fucking awful so like that, (laughs) that that helps out a lot but um yeah once i saw draft day i started playing fantasy football and i got back into it and you know, when there is draft day, like now I've got without fail, like at least three or four people hitting me up on Twitter and sending me like draft day memes. And it's always just a day that I look forward to. And it's kind of become like a running joke about movies that Adam likes in the history of this movie. So for that, I have a lot of fondness about it. I love it. So one of the things that one of the reasons the movie works for me yeah. and, and, and don't get me wrong, I really like any given Sunday. But I the, do too. But the yeah. fact that I, I, I love that movie, but the fact that they don't have the NFL license, that the NFL took a look at that script, the Oliver Stone script said, no, no, mm-hmm. this ain't happened. It's kind of like when the Air Force looked at the script for Iron Eagle and said, no, no, you're not going to get to use our planes for this movie. No. The fact that Draft Day does have that, well, I'll call sort of the NFL license, that the NFL did grant the permission for them to use, you know, the real teams, the real, you know, it just, it really sort of has this level of authenticity to it that so many, I think so many football movies are missing because the NFL is so sort of tight on letting that license go out. I mean, I look at movies like The Replacements and all these other films where they just couldn't get the permission to use the the, the NFL shield, if you will. And 
uh, I think that movie works really well for me because of that, because it's like, okay, well, this is the Cleveland Browns and they're dealing with the Seattle Seahawks and I get all this and don't me wrong. It's also a really entertaining film, but it works yeah. especially for me because it has that level of authenticity like Moneyball does because, you know, it's a story of the Oakland A's. But Patrick, your thoughts on, you guys have talked about draft day a lot over the history of F this movie, but to, to refresh the listeners of the Dana Buckler show, your thoughts on draft day. I just found out that the NFL didn't grant the license to any given Sunday, which explains why I've I've bet on the Miami Sharks every year, and I have lost a fortune. Um, so I thought draft day was the end of the world when it was coming out for the reasons that Adam outlined, because I was like, oh, my gosh, now we're just making movies about like I was like fantasy football has gotten so big that now we're just making movies about the draft. And that's. And I had no idea how much worse it would get because in 2023, every other movie is like about a product, you know, about the launch of the Blackberry or the Air Jordan or Flamin' Hot Cheetos or whatever, um, which I haven't seen. I haven't seen Flaming Hot. Maybe it's one of the year's best. I don't know. Uh, (laughs) I like Draft Day a lot. I find it incredibly entertaining. I love it a hundred times more than I would otherwise because of how much I associate it with Adam. And I yeah. love Adam so much that like, I love how much this movie means to him. And so, uh, it will forever hold an affectionate place in my heart. Awesome. Now, Adam, I have to ask you this question because, uh, I'm a lifelong new England Patriots fan and, yeah. you know, I have settled into the sad, hard cold reality of the future of of the team that uh that's been it's been tough for me i'm I'm getting used to it i'm getting by i just want to let you know it's 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 not easy but i say all this because come draft day i get very excited for the real draft day that is and i watch about the first half an hour and then i'm just done now do you actually sit down and watch the three days of the NFL draft. No, not not the three days, but I mean, like last year was very exciting because the Bears had the number one pick. Fair enough. Yeah, they 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 didn't keep it until draft night. But and then this year they're going to have prob- probably like two of the top, at least ten picks. Um, but the thing that I find, and this is more about football than it is about draft day, but the thing that I find interesting and sort of compelling about the NFL is. It's a league that values the prospect of the unknown so much higher than the known. And I find that sort of in a weird way charming because it's sort of aspirational. But I also find it weird that like a proven player um, is so it's like a used car. Like they just don't give a shit after a while and they'll trade you for magic beans. Um, and <laughs> Like, cause he, like Justin Fields is the Bears quarterback and like, you know, there's a lot of controversy of like, do we sign him past his rookie deal or do we go into the draft and get draft a new quarterback and stuff like that. And when you were hearing like these, you know, mock trades, it's like, I don't know, maybe we could get like a second or third round pick for him. And I'm just like, it's like, you're asking for like the 70th best magic bean <laughs> for a guy who could can on his best day throw like for 400 yards and five touchdowns and stuff like that. I just find it fascinating. And that's kind of what part of the quote unquote magic of draft day is, is like this number one pick is such a huge responsibility and like, they're not overstating it. Like it's something that is earth 
you know, it rocks the ground below it of any franchise that has it. And it's so funny how Frank Langella does like his stupid fucking analogies, but they're great because they're so dumb where he takes Kevin Costner to a water park and he has to show like a water slide. And he's like, are you going to make me a big splash, Sonny? And it's just like, (laughs) you could have done this in an office or on the phone. (laughs) I just love it. I love it. It's so hammy. I love it. I love it. Uh, Patrick, your 2014 movie. Uh, my 2014 movie is a movie that was not even on my list in 2014, but has only grown my estimation in the nine years since then. And I won't talk too much about it because the blank check podcast just devoted three hours to it. But it's David Fincher's Gone Girl, which uh, has become one of my favorite David Fincher movies. Uh, I never read the book. I saw the movie in theaters in October of 2014, and I was like, I don't know. It seems kind of misogynist. I have some problems with it. And then I watched it again when it came out on Blu-ray, and I was like, oh, no, I'm stupid. This movie's great. And the more I think about it, the more I like it. I think it's one of the best cast movies of the last 10 years in terms of not only is every actor in it great and delivering like home run performances, but there's all this meta textual shit going on with the casting that makes it so much better. Like all this stuff we know about Ben Affleck, the public persona makes his casting that much more interesting as the lead of this movie. And I was just talking about this. I just, before we started recording here, I was recording a a Patreon episode with our friend Rob and Gone Girl came up and I was talking about like, I don't know that the casting will last. Like, will it stand the test of time? Because in 2014, the casting of like um, the girl from the Blurred Lines video, uh, Emily Ratajkowski. Yeah was so smart to have her be like this college student mistress that Ben Affleck is fucking on the side. It was such a smart piece of casting. Now it's just like, Oh, she's the actor that they got for this part. And I think some of the meta textual stuff is removed from it. doesn't make it a worse movie, but I do think you kind of needed to be there in 2014 to really appreciate like, how smart it was to get Tyler Perry to play this showboat lawyer. And now you could watch it and just be like, Oh, that guy's great in the part, but you don't necessarily know all the stuff that surrounds it. If that makes sense. Uh, no, it does. It does. And gone girl for me is, Oh, I saw that in the theater and I was just, it was not knowing the source material like you, Patrick had not read the book. All I knew is it was a Fincher movie. And so it was, I was going to watch it and Affleck for me, you know, there was this weird sort of in my mind, not realizing that it was Fincher because I'm so used to Affleck directing gone, baby gone, the town Argo. And, you know, he's kind of the stars in most of those movies. And, and it just, it, it kind of felt like an Affleck movie half the time for me. Like this is something he directed. Like it was just this very, uh, I don't know why I'm saying blurred lines, but very blurry. Uh, the first time I, first time I saw the film, that's how I was kind of responding to it, but it takes some serious turns that if, again, if you don't know the source material and I will keep this a completely spoiler free, but it takes some turns that I just was not ready for. Like I thought this was going to be more of a down the nose, 
early 90s thriller type of film, you know, the kind of movie that would have starred Alec Baldwin in the early 90s. Uh, but it, it, it certainly is not that type of movie. And it's it's fantastic. And like you, Patrick, uh, I listen to Blank Check every for me. So it's F this movie on Wednesdays. It's Blank <laughs> Check Sunday mornings with my coffee okay. because their episode usually drops around midnight my time right. on Saturday, right. Saturday night. So and I was actually just listening to their episode on Mank today. A film I have yet to watch, which well, I will now. Well, I guess I'll, you know they, what? Are I, they fans of Mank? I, they I like it a lot more than I do. I'm an hour into the episode, and you okay. know they've opened the dossier, if you will, and and I've kind of stopped listening to it because I haven't seen the film, and I don't want to be spoiled beyond what I've heard so far. My biggest takeaway from it was Fincher wanted more money than he, you know, to make this movie than, you know, the big studios were willing to give him. So Netflix said, make whatever you want. Is Mank good, Patrick? I don't like it. No. I think it's Fincher's worst movie. Adam? Uh, no, I, they say something in the, towards the middle of the Blake Check episode where Griffin Newman kind of posits that it's like people are guardedly always like, I don't know. I didn't like that. Am I wrong for not liking it? Isn't it boring? And that's kind of where I fall. Like I, I think their conversation is by multiples more interesting than the act of watching that movie. Well, maybe on that note, I'll just finish the episode and yeah. one day, if I actually have the time, I'll, I'll put it on, but there's that yeah. we live in a world where there's so much to watch. You have to mm -hmm. really, Remember the old days, the video store. Here's here's remember, you guys were old enough. I go to the video store in the early to mid nineties, you would, you know, pick out two or three movies and you would see them through to the end because you rented them. You took them home, you paid right, money for right. them. Now yep. there's so much content that it's like I have two hours. I had better make the right choice. Because mm -hmm. I mean that's I mean, that's just the thing. Um Adam, your thoughts on on uh, Gone Girl? Um, I don't know. I kind of need to reserve judgment on it a little bit because I haven't seen it since 2014. Yeah. I remember at the time knowing that it was a movie I probably needed to see again, but then just never did. I thought it was entertaining for the most part. I had trouble with it because I thought it was maybe misogynistic, but maybe I'm wrong um, and just not giving David Fincher enough credit. Um and like that's kind of part of the point of the movie and i just it just didn't come clear enough to me um on the first viewing i also wasn't really sold on rosamund pike's performance um but like i said i think i need to give it another crack and uh see if i like it a little bit better your spoiler free thoughts on the killer since we're on the subject of fincher like the his new movie, The Killer? Yeah. I haven't seen it yet. Okay. Um, I don't subscribe to Netflix regularly, but um, I plan on, after Thanksgiving, I'm trying to time it so I can watch, so I can subscribe for one month and then watch, um, I want to see Fair Play, which is the Alden Ehrenreich movie, um, Maestro, The Killer, May, December, and the Sly documentary. Okay, so I can talk briefly about the Sly documentary real quick. Yeah. I've seen it. All right. Mm -hmm. Here's what I'll tell you. All right. Did you okay. see Did you see the Arnold documentary or the three part miniseries? No, I know Patrick uh, says it's really good, but I haven't seen it. So that that is a three part miniseries. 
Each one's an hour. One hour is devoted to to this talking about Arnold now devoted to his bodybuilding. One hour is devoted to his acting career and one hour sort of devoted to his political career. And they're all kind of there's like loose uh, storylines that sort of connect uh, all three episodes. Fascinating, really fascinating. And Arnold is incredibly candid in that. The Sylvester Stallone documentary I found to be really interesting Mm-hmm. Um, there was some things that I learned. Uh, I'll keep it spoiler free for you. The relationship he had with his parents, I found that to be a, a really fascinating yeah. uh, sort of story. But I will tell you this. When it was over, I remember, because my girlfriend is a huge Sylvester Stallone fan as well. We watched it together. And when mm-hmm. it was over, she said, that was great. And I said, that just scratched the surface of yeah. Sylvester Stallone. I mean, there's this whole part where it's like he does amazing in the 90s. Then he does Stop on My Mom Will Shoot, Oscar, career kind of falls down a little bit. And then completely glosses over the 90s with the exception of Copland and then goes to Rocky Balboa. And I I don't want to say anything more than that. It was good. It needed to be an hour and a half longer. It needed to be three hours in length. That's my that's my. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of what I've been hearing. Um, I. I would recommend Rocky versus Drago. Oh, I've seen if, that. Yeah. And if your listeners haven't seen that, I don't think that his, or sorry, I take that back. I would not recommend Rocky versus Drago, his cut, but I would recommend the hour and a half or whatever documentary about him making his director's cut of Rocky for, because listening, to, it's, it's such a fascinating movie because listening to him and his talking about the changes he's making and why he's making them. It's fascinating hearing a director's process and he, and everything he's saying, you're, he's so convincing. You're just like, yes, that sounds better. And then you watch the movie and you're just like, this is so much worse. (laughs) I just find it so interesting. But the thing that I love about Stallone is um, he's such a smart guy and a really interesting guy. And um, a skillful filmmaker who's not afraid of making kind of crazy decisions. There's nothing really vanilla about his work. Um, and I would love to see like a De Palma type of documentary just about the movies he's only direct, like that he's directed yeah. um, and starred in, but not just the ones that he starred in. Okay, excellent, excellent. All right, so that was the, that was uh, Patrick's 2014 Gone Girl. Adam, your 2015 movie. Uh, so my 2015 movie is a movie that I loved at the time, and I wish I had the courage to have put it on my top 10 list, um, but I didn't because I was st- it, 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 it wasn't until like 2017 where I was just like, fuck it, and I put like Wish Upon on my top 10 list, <laughs> and that's when I finally, you know, turned into the supreme being that I am today. <laughs> Achieved um, your true form. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, but the movie in 2015 that I did not, that I wish I did, is The Intern, uh, the Nancy Myers uh, workplace comedy with uh, Robert De Niro and Anne Hathaway. Um, I think it's uh, one of the best Anne Hathaway performances that she's ever given. And that's saying something because I think she's consistently great. Um, but the thing that I, and her and De Niro have such a a great interplay and relationship in that movie it's like chemistry without you like suspecting that they would have chemistry together and de niro is so warm and funny in a 
and it's in a comedy and it's not like he's going for like broad Fokker laughs and stuff like that. It's just kind of like really subtle and he's just a good man and he's got a lot of wisdom to impart and it's sort of like him addressing sort of the workplace generation gaps about professionalism and about like kind of you know how to treat clients and how to think think, think about things as a, as a business as a strategy and not just kind of be like into your own business um but the thing i think that the movie does so well that doesn't get enough credit for is um I'm all for, and I want to be very clear on this, I'm all for um, positive depictions of powerful women in movies. And I think it's gotten better, in, especially in the past 10 years. But I think that it's not normal women. I think it's like you put them in a superhero suit and that makes them powerful, or it has to be some kind of like a fictional status. But the thing that's so impressive is Anne Hathaway's character in The Intern is the CEO of her own company that she built up from the ground up. And I have been in corporate America for the past 20 years, and I've seen how exceptional uh, female executives are um, and just kind of how they go about their business and their influence. But yet they're, you know, a lot of them are just so humble and down to earth and everything like that, but just so hardworking and then they balance like you know motherhood on top of it and then like a lot of you know other interests and things like that and Anne Hathaway depicts that better than I've seen in a lot of movies and I think these are the types of women that we should be propping up as heroes um and not as much and I don't mean I'm using this as an easy target just because the movie's out now then like uh Rachel Zegler in the Hunger Games or like a Brie Larson in the Marvels and stuff like that. Like, I, I don't see how anybody really can kind of watch that and be like, rah, rah, girl power. I feel so much more, you know, better about myself because I saw somebody shoot a fucking rainbow out of their fingers or something like that. Like, <laughs> but if um, I'm watching Anne Hathaway in the intern or I'm watching, um, who's just like, you know, vulnerable, but like remains unflappable in that vulnerability. She pushes forward, even though she's like allowed to have her feelings behind closed doors and things like that. And her life is tough, but she's just like talented and smart. And like, she's there, she's going to succeed. Um, I would rather see that. And I would rather see like Taylor Swift at the top of her powers and like the eras tour and stuff like that. than kind of this faux you know, girl power type of stuff. So I think the intern is underrated in that regard, but it, even aside from that, it's just such a breezy Nancy Myers type of movie that it's so easy to put on and just enjoy. Well, that is a movie that I've added to my list. Cause in fact, uh, although I've heard of it and I remember when it came out, it's just one that uh, I, I hate to use the term fell through the cracks, but for whatever reason, yeah. I, I just, I didn't see it, but you have sold me on it. Sold. So, Patrick, your thoughts on The Intern from 2015? I also have not seen The Intern, okay. and it's been on my list for years, specifically because of Adam's love for it. Um, because the marketing didn't really make me want to yeah. see it, uh, even though I kind of like Nancy Myers' movies, but I think her movie right before this was It's Complicated, and I didn't love that movie. Yeah. And then The Intern, and I was like, oh, here's... De Niro in comedy mode, and that rarely spells success. Um, but I was wrong about the marketing based on what I know and what Adam has said. Um, we own a Blu-ray of it. I still haven't watched it. I wanted to watch it because I knew it was going to be on Adam's list. 
prior to this recording and I just did not get a chance. So I for sure need to see it. Yeah, I agree. Now, uh, Patrick, a question I've been dying to ask you for several, several years. And I every time I hear you mention that you you bought a Blu-ray or you have a Blu-ray, I always, in the back of my mind, say, the next time you're talking to him, ask him this question. How many movies do you think you own? I have no idea. Okay. Um, Hundreds? In the thousands? It's in the thousands. It's in the thousands. Yeah. Um, I, I, I hesitate to get a real count because I think it would depress me because I would be like, what have I done with my life? <laughs> or like, I would start thinking about the money that went into that. And a lot of them I got for free because I used to review movies. Sure. And so yeah. It's not all money spent, but it is too much money spent on movies. And I don't want to be the guy who like fetishizes physical media, which is like a new kind of online guy. And yeah. I rarely will like brag about my collection on social media which i see a lot of people do it's just like it's for me it's not for other people um but i like you know when adam and i go to do these shows where like we're going to talk about 10 movies i like that i can go down to the basement and pull nine of them yeah um but i do not have an exact count it's a lot it's a lot okay and and you know and i'm not going to get on the the high horse of the physical media guy but if one thing I've learned over the past few years is if you physically own a copy of a movie, you own that movie. Uh, otherwise, you own a digital license to a film that I feel like at some point could be taken away from you. So yeah. and so that's why, you know, my most important films, you know, Jaws and certain other films I have on every format they've ever come out because these are movies I always want to make sure that I have. But I've always been curious. And that's a great answer to your question. And, and I appreciate that. So your 2015 movie, my 2015 movie was my favorite movie of 2015. And it's a movie I still think is underrated, even though it comes from probably one of the most celebrated living filmmakers. And that is Quentin Tarantino's The Hateful Eight. <laughs> which I get why people don't like because it's long and it's incredibly nasty and mean spirited. It's not my favorite Tarantino movie, but as of now, it's probably the one I've seen the most times because I'll watch it two to three times a year. As soon as it gets cold, as soon as it snows for the first time, right around the holidays, I'm always putting on the hateful eight. It's a movie that I love to live in, even though, like I said, it's, very angry and mean-spirited i think it says some really harsh but true things about the state of race relations in our country about the state of men and women in our country um it's telling that the thing that bonds the races at the you know near the end of the movie is hanging a woman um it usually gets placed at or near the bottom of people's Tarantino rankings, I think it's a legitimate American masterpiece. And I will completely agree with you. And But with a caveat of when I saw... This movie famously leaked online, if you if you recall. Like, this was a big the deal. The scripted, the, right? The, well, not only the script, but... Uh, oh, the movie a screen, A screener, a, you know, an Oscar screener oh. had famously kind of leaked online. And I, I didn't watch it that way, but I remember some friends of mine telling me, hey, hey, listen, you can watch The Hateful Eight right now. Don't go to the theater. I'm like, no, 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 no. This is something I really want to see on the big screen. I didn't get a chance to see it in 70 millimeter roadshow, you know, the way that it's meant to be seen. But I, I still saw it in the theater. 
But when I left the theater the first time I saw the film, I think I left a little more confused than than I expected to be. And that's going to be kind of a pattern for certain Tarantino films for me. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the same way, because I think I have certain expectations for a Quentin Tarantino film. And when I don't get those expectations, it takes my brain a couple days to process. But I would put The Hateful Eight at a top three Tarantino film for me easily. And I'll say this because I want to be very careful in how I say this. I think it has some of the most interesting characters and performances of any of the Tarantino films, period. There's, you know, quote unquote, eight different characters. Not one of them is similar to the other. They're all so uniquely different. And you, again, be careful how I say this. You're interested to spend more time with each of these characters to learn a little bit more about who they are because they're compelling on screen. Dare I say some of them are charismatic on screen, but again, I want to say that very carefully because everything you said about the film is 100% true. It's a mean-spirited movie. But and for the and for a Tarantino film, I think it has the least amount of action and sort of, you know, when the violence kicks in, it is violent. But it is what, you know, by all definitions, uh, a slow burn movie. And I think it's easily his most watchable film. So I I agree with you 100 percent. Adam, your thoughts on The Hateful Eight? Yeah, I um, for, for whatever reason, even though it's kind of a thornier movie for him, um, I saw it in theaters seven times. Wow. Wow. Like, it just, I just, I remember that winter, all I wanted to do was watch The Force Awakens and Hateful Eight. <laughs> that was it. So I just went back to see one or the other all the time. Um, and I still kind of, if I'm going to sit down and watch it, I will watch it Roadshow Away because I know where the stop was. And then I'll listen to the Crystal Gale song and I'll come <laughs> back to it 10 minutes later. And um, uh, yeah, it's a movie that's hard to like embrace fully like you could with Jackie Brown or um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Hollywood yeah. um, but it has, he, he was on the precipice of something that I don't think that I knew was in the air yet um, that would surely come to fruition in 2016 um in the world and i think that the movie's only kind of grown more powerful because of it the fact that he's able to do it as sort of like an agatha christie mystery and you know even though the characters are despicable it's almost like watching like a steven seagal movie where you're just like yeah well i'm not rooting for any of them but i can enjoy like these performances i guess um and yeah your enjoyment doesn't mean like you're endorsing any of the behavior or anything like that so um it's a it's a tough movie it's like a complex movie but it's also like you guys both said it's very watchable it's very um important and uh yeah it's something that i think is one of his few movies where i feel like i haven't fully cracked it yet even though i've seen it so many times like i feel like with more viewings, I'm going to get more and more different things out of it. Um, whereas if I'm watching Pulp Fiction, even though it's like my third favorite movie, I'm pretty sure I've gotten everything that I'll I'll get from Pulp Fiction. So it's like Walton Goggins in The Hateful Eight yeah. is one of the most despicable human beings ever. 
Mm-hmm. Yet you find yourself rooting for him at the end is like, oh, because he's kind of cracked the case. I'm keeping this somewhat spoiler free. And you almost want to see these guys succeed. And then you have to kind of mentally check yourself and go, wait a second. He's awful. They're all awful. Don't root for these guys to yeah. to come out in the end. Yeah. And it just kind of also shows that not there's no person who's only one thing no. all the time. Right. There's there's people who are you know, different variations of, you know, like just like a Kurt Russell's character. It's just like, he's very liberal in the sense of like how he, you know, sort of, you know, treats the Samuel L. Jackson character. But then once he feels bruised by it, it turns ugly very quickly. And then like his treatment of women is horrible all the time. (laughs) So it's like this person who's kind of the so-called like good white guy, like is bad too. And then Walton Goggins is just like, you know, the person that you're just like, I would never want to associate with this guy, but then he's smart. You can't deny that. So it's, it's stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, Patrick, I'll ask you this quick question. Uh, I've actually never sat down and watched the extended version of this that's available on Netflix. Can you speak to that at all? I have. I don't like it. I, you know, it's meant to be a movie. It's not meant to be broken up into four episodes. There was a little bit of new stuff, but honestly, it's not worth it to me given the way that they break the 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 movie up. Um, the roadshow version, or the you know the watching it all the way through. That's definitely the way to go um the netflix version is bizarre because they play the opening credits before every chapter right right and i'm just like what the fuck is this and tarantino signed off on that ah yeah he's a weirdo he's a a weirdo yeah he had some kind of like he was pretty pro netflix for a little while and it seems like that kind of went away but yeah all right so adam you're 20 and, and patrick guys great picks on those ones uh Adam, you're, we're on 2016 now. Um, I'm going to go with 10 Cloverfield Lane, okay, which is a movie that I was really impressed by opening night when I saw it. And then I didn't see it for a long time, but I revisited it two years ago during Scary Movie Month um, and was just, I thought it was even better than I remembered. And the thing that I like so much about it is it works as like, if this were the Twilight Zone or Tales from the Crypt, you would be talking about this as one of the best episodes of that series to your friends. And it works as, you know, just kind of this chamber drama, sort of like a stage type of thing with people huddled together in a bunker against their will, some of them against their will. Um, And they kind of build this surrogate family. And then the thing that I love about it is it uh, it promises something, and then when, spoiler, I guess, when like the third act develops, it over-delivers on the thing that it was promising, and there's some creatures and things like that, and they're so bizarre that it's frightening because of it. It's not just like sort of like this weird like monster. It's like, what if a dog had diamond skin? <laughs> it's just like, <laughs> it's like, what the fuck? And it's just, that's always the scariest thing where it's just like, what if this plant had teeth and eyeballs and stuff like that? It's like, I'm thinking of the ruins and stuff like that. It's like, that's the kind of stuff that's scary. It's like the thing that you're used to. And then it kind of is just a little bit off um, and not just kind of born out of whole cloth. But 
Um, the thing also that's so nice about 10 Cloverfield Lane is this is the movie that really convinced me that in a different era of movie star era, uh, ten, uh, Mary Elizabeth Winstead would be the next Sigourney Weaver. Yeah. Um, I think that she is so good um, in this sort of action heroine type of role. And um, I think she's taps into it a little bit, but like, I think that, yeah, in a, in a different time period, like she, she would be, um, you know, getting the roles that Sigourney Weaver did. And uh, yeah, I don't know. It's not that the type of movie where I like find whole lot of deeper meaning in or anything like that, but just kind of as a enjoyable genre exercise, I think it's pretty fantastic. So when I saw the movie, and and maybe you guys can speak to this or not, this movie was not originally written as a sequel to Cloverfield. Is that from what I understand, or it was a it was kind of a spec script, or it was something, and they kind of said, "Let's put the Cloverfield name on it." I think that's what I read. Yeah, I think so. Don't quote me on that. But I'm watching this film, and I didn't see it in the theater. I did see it uh, either video on demand, or it had to have been. I don't think I was. I don't think video stores were around, so it had to have been video on demand when I when I watched this. But I really enjoyed the film, although I felt like it was going to be a movie that was going to have sort of an ambiguous ending. Like, I don't know what's really going on. And then mm-hmm. like the way you described it, Adam, is sort of it. Oh, no, no, no. This is everything you thought it was going to be and, and substantially more. But. I remember the first time watching it the, for the first two acts kind of settling into, well, this is going to be super ambiguous the way, the way the movie ends. Mm-hmm. No, not the case. So yeah, I right there with you. I thought it was a really enjoyable film. Patrick. Yeah. I also like that. It's kind of got a double threat where it's like, you think that she's in the clear because she, you know, triumphed over one antagonist. And then it's just like, you open the door and you think like, it's going to be like, you know, a certain new saw movie where the sun is shining and everything's okay. But, um, that's not the case. It's a whole, it's like a double ending. It's or a double climax. It's like aliens where it's just like, no, you still have work to do. Patrick, your yeah, thoughts. That was definitely, that was one of my favorite things about it. When I saw it was that I think as moviegoers, we've just grown so accustomed to sort of the, turn of the screw ending where it's just like, well, I don't know. What do you think happened? <laughs> and I think about a movie like, and I'm going to spoil a little bit of a Kevin Smith movie called red state, yeah. which sets up something and then chickens out at the last minute yeah. and is like, it backs away from it. And I always kind of steal myself against the feeling that that, that's going to happen again. I mean, it's happened more than in just red state. It's happened in a lot of movies, but 10 Cloverfield lane, I was kind of stealing myself against it because again, three quarters of the movie is so compelling that you don't even technically need the last quarter to feel like you got your money's worth. Mm. Um, But the fact that the movie decides to put its money where its mouth is and go where it, kind of promises to go i give it so much credit for it because so many movies chicken out you know um and i i as somebody who used to listen to the slash film cast i was familiar with dan trachtenberg as a guest 
and as a movie fan and i was really rooting for him when 10 cloverfield lane came out because this was sort of his debut feature and i was like i want to see if this guy can make a movie and boy can he mm. uh he's only made the two he made this and prey which i also really liked yeah. i'm excited to see where he goes next i might i like cloverfield a lot i might like 10 cloverfield lane better and I think this could have been sort of an amazing almost anthology series, like Adam was saying, like the Twilight Zone, had they not made the Cloverfield Paradox. Yeah. So I have a theory that they could keep going right now and people would ignore the Cloverfield Paradox. Right. No, you're probably right. right. Um, I will say this to, to touch on something you said, Patrick. Um, I wasn't able to pinpoint it until you actually said it, but when referring to Red State... It's kind of shocking that the guy that made Dogma uh, chickened out on the ending of Red State. And I'll keep that super spoiler free, but I know exactly what you're talking about when when Goodman gives his sort of his monologue at the end, sort of a, the debrief explaining what happened. I remember having this utter like, oh, really? Sort of. So, I, yeah, it's again, it's just it's ironic that the guy who made Dogma would chicken out on something like that. And speaking of John Goodman, his performance in 10 Cloverfield Lane is like maybe a top five yeah. John Goodman. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Good, good, good pick there. All right. So, Patrick, to you for 2016. Um, I'm going to go with the Coen Brothers' Hail Caesar, a movie that I keep championing as a, a sneaky Coen Brothers masterpiece. Um, I think it failed to make much of an impression when it came out. Uh because it is so episodic and it is so weird and esoteric it has this amazing cast that i think got people into the theater and they're like well channing tatum sings and dances and scarlett johansson does a mermaid number and there were lots of reasons for people to want to go see it but the temperature on the movie at the time was pretty cold i don't hear it talked about that much but i think it's one of their best movies of the last decade if not more um, it's one of my favorites of theirs. I think it has a lot to say, not just about the history of Hollywood, but I think it has a lot to say about faith and organized religion and who we choose to serve. Um, I think it, I, I the Josh Brolin character, Eddie Mannix, I think is one of their best characters and they write great characters just like Tarantino. Like uh, they often get, Tarantino and the Coen brothers kind of get labeled as writers of great dialogue, but I don't think it's the dialogue. I think it's the people saying the dialogue. I think it's their characters Mm -hmm. that they write that make their movies so special and so memorable. And I think hail Caesar top to bottom is amazing characters. Even Jonah Hill, who has one scene creates this amazing character in the span of less than five minutes um because he meets the legal definition of personhood and it's that's a joke that i just will never tire of um i think it's a very funny movie i i show it a lot of semesters in my film class it is always met with head scratching and sometimes anger uh i someday i feel like i will be vindicated and this movie will be recognized uh as being great it's interesting because is it safe to say that no two Coen Brothers films are alike? Like they're all pretty different. I mean, they're all you can always expect something very 
you know, something you've never seen before. As far as characters, I can, I can certainly speak to that. I say all this because there are two Coen brothers films that are, uh, I have not seen. Hail Caesar is one of them, and Inside Lewin Davis is the other. Those are the two Coen Brother movies that, I, for some reason, that's just the gap in their filmography. Can't tell you why I haven't. I love the Coen Brothers movies, um, but this is going on my list, and it's something that I'm going to try to watch at some point this week. And I, I, again, I have no excuse, Patrick, for why I haven't seen this film. I, I'm a big fan. Uh, Adam, I'll just defer to you on your thoughts on Hail Caesar. Yeah, I have a weird relationship with the Coen brothers um, where sometimes I feel like I'm not smart enough for the Coen brothers. Um, that was I, me with a, a serious man. Okay, I think I got a serious man maybe just because of the Judaism stuff like ingrained oh, sure. in my background. Hold that where, like, over me. <laughs> just kind of like the vibe of it. I kind of got it. I don't know. I was just tuned into the wavelength already, but... Um, I find their dramas more accessible than their comedies, by and large, um, or their crime movies, I guess, um, crime dramas more than their comedies. Um, because I think that I can tap into the themes of what's going on a little bit easier. Um, with the comedies, I almost always am just like, I enjoy the performances. This is breezy. This is funny. Or most of the time, I'm like that. There's a few that just don't work with me, but I feel like I have to do extra work to kind of crack like what they're getting at. And I think I have that a little bit with Hail Caesar. Like I almost want Patrick to write like a cliff notes for me on Hail Caesar a little bit, but that's not to say I don't like the movie. There's stuff in it that I really enjoy. Like just as a comedy, I really like it and I find it very entertaining and I will follow the Eddie Mannix character into any movie I love Alden Ehrenreich's kind of just, you know, sweetie pie, like movie star cowboy. Um, so, I mean, like, I really, I really enjoy it a lot. Um, but I don't know what it is. Maybe it's just because their comedies are sort of, and I don't mean this as a negative term. Um, they feel sort of aloof to me in a way that I just, um, because I'm such at heart a sincere person, I have trouble finding my way to sometimes so um like or oh brother we're out thou or hail caesar like the first times i see them i'm just kind of like yo I, i'm pretty sure i did not get that like i i like some stuff in it but i'm pretty sure like what they're going for i'm just it's going right over my head so um i think i'm close with hail caesar but i need a couple more viewings of it to, to really fully embrace it okay all right Excellent. Well, I'm putting that one on the list, so perfect. So, Adam, we're going to you for 2017. Uh, okay, so I hate to repeat sort of with the same actor, but um, I, I'm a card-carrying member of the Anne Hathaway fan club, so mm -hmm. I will go with uh, Nacho Vigilando's Colossal, oh, wow. um, which was my number one movie of that year. It was a movie I remember having at number seven on my top 10 list. And then I rewatched it the night before I did my top 10. And I'm like, oh, no, it's number one. And I love <laughs> when that happens because um, sometimes a movie, you know, reveals itself to you on the first viewing. And sometimes you have to let it kind of sit with you for a little while. And the thing that I love about that is it sort of came out right around the time of um, the deconstruction in society of the nice guy. And I had 
a little bit of an about face on that where I'm just kind of like, I always considered myself the nice guy, but like maybe I wasn't as nice as I thought that I was. And I'm not as bad as like Jason Sudeikis turns out in this movie because he's just like the epitome of the toxic nice guy. But um, I think that it's definitely uh, a movie that it markets itself as this kaiju comedy. And Anne Hathaway is this, you know, fuck up who has like a drinking problem. And you think like she's the issue. And then you kind of learn that. No, it's not her. It's like how everybody treats her for something that's a disease that she suffers with. And um, I think it's really smart about how it repurposes a kaiju movie to be a comment about alcoholism. It repurposes kaiju to be a statement about toxic masculinity. Um, And it just builds into something where you think it's going to be kind of like this Sundancey lark into something really heavy and poignant and rewarding by the end. It's a movie that like just grows and grows and grows where it becomes like this just beautiful cinematic experience by the end of it when you're just kind of expecting like kind of a silly, quirky, you know, indie comedy at the beginning. I will be the first to admit watching that film that, I couldn't get the allegories, I, the allegories. I couldn't pick up uh, initially the, the way you sort of described it. I yeah. didn't know what I was getting myself into because yeah. I, I didn't know if this was sort of a play on a parody of Pacific Rim. I wasn't pick, I just didn't, I didn't get it the first time. And I remember you mentioning this going back to 2017 on F this movie, mentioning this film and sort of having a better understanding of it. Having said all that, I have not revisited the film, but I, I, I have nothing but the utmost respect for, you know, what they were attempting to do with that film. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Patrick. I also, I also liked just kind of the twist on Sudeikis's persona. Cause I always found him to be up to that point. I didn't think that he was knowing enough about his smugness on screen. (laughs) And I think that this movie sort of weaponizes it in a really interesting way. Yeah, that's exactly the word I was going to use. Is wep- it weaponizes Jason Sudeikis in a really interesting way, because he makes he's made a couple of like straightforward romantic comedies, mm-hmm. um, sleeping with other people. Is that what the the one I'm yep. thinking of? Yeah, and he's good and he's likable, but yeah, for them to for for Nacho Vigalondo to sort of recognize the darkness that's there in Jason Sudeikis is so smart. Um, I. Nacho Vigalondo is one of those guys who's like every movie I will see, who's every movie I want to love, and then I rarely do. I'm always like, well, that was interesting, or that had some ideas, but Colossal is the one where it really all comes together. Mm -hmm. Um, Great performances, a great central conceit, just this idea that Anne Hathaway is controlling this kaiju monster. And I went into it expecting that as sort of this... the the kaiju monster as a metaphor for her being a disaster in everyone's lives and so for it to kind of take the turn that it does and become about something different um i was like oh that's super interesting because you already have this high concept that you could have just seen through to the end but instead you want to be about more um and it was it's the first and 
maybe still only movie that really gets to the heart of a certain kind of guy who really exists, you know, in the online space, but everywhere in the world. Um, and it's interesting that some of these movies that we're talking about, I think came out like a year or two early. Hateful Eight, I think was a couple years too early. Uh, Colossal comes out right around like, me too, right? Isn't it kind of starting or kind of going right about now? Yeah, it yeah. came out in like the spring of 2017, and like the Harvey Weinstein Me Too stuff, I believe, was the fall. Of yeah, it was around November of 2017 when all that started so it's, kicking off. So it's like a couple months too early. Not that it's a movie about Me Too, but it is very much about Me Too. I mean, you know, it's like it's about. Well, it's also about how men for no reason feel like they can lord over how women should behave and what they're allowed to do with their bodies. Right. And how, yeah, it's, it's that. And they always like kind of coded in, you know, I'm just a nice guy and I'm trying to help you. And like, why Mm -hmm. won't you accept my help? And dot, dot, dot. Why won't you accept my love? And things like that. Um, Yeah. It's just so smart about it where, one thing it, it kind of reminds me of this like um there's a movie called stone with robert de niro and edward norton and mila jovovich that came out i think in like 2008 or something like that um and that movie really made me appreciate de niro in a different way because there's no better actor at like masking layers of ugliness with a sheen of civility and like i'm kind of the upright citizen but like if you prod him just a little it's like <laughs> vile and i think that that's what colossal does also really well is just like this whole thing is just it's it's play it's acting it's like not who these guys are and i don't even know if they know that and like and and if they do know that it's it's so they're so far gone that it's even worse and everything like that um but it's just like a really heady interesting movie about a lot and it's great that it was sort of a surprise because otherwise i think it i think if they marketed it as what it is it might seem too didactic but like you kind of coming to it along the way kind of helps the movie a bit because it Mm. feels sort of like a surprise okay awesome awesome perfect all right, so Patrick, your 2017. My 2017 is also a movie about toxic masculinity. Go figure. That is Sofia Coppola's remake of Don Siegel's The Beguiled, a movie that again snuck up on me. I didn't see it theatrically. I so wish I would have. I caught up with it on Blu-ray and liked it. You know, I thought it was pretty. Um, and then as the years went on, it stuck with me in a way that I didn't expect it to. And then I would revisit it a couple times a year. And I was like, oh, this is actually a great movie. Um, I thought the idea of her remaking The Beguiled was really interesting on paper because the Don Siegel movie with Clint Eastwood is so much about toxic masculinity, but it's told by some toxic men. It's told by <laughs> Don Siegel and yeah. Clint Eastwood. Um, So the idea of Sofia Coppola coming at it from a female perspective, I thought was really interesting. She has this amazing cast of Nicole Kidman and Kirsten Dunst and Colin Farrell and Elle Fanning. Um, 
it's so beautiful to look at. It's all photographed in like natural light and candlelight. The performances are wall to wall. Great. Um, it, uh, speaking of weaponizes, it's another movie that is really smart in the way that it weaponizes what I think a lot of people associate with Nicole Kidman, which is a kind of coldness, mm-hmm. um, and a sort of repression. I mean, she's played this kind of part a number of times. I'm thinking of like the others and there's a handful of movies. I, I didn't expect it to be as good as it is because it is a remake of a movie I really, really like. But I think if you put both of them in front of me, I would prefer to watch the Sofia Coppola version, even though I love the Don Siegel one. If um, for I'll, I'll ask for myself and for anyone that maybe hasn't hasn't seen the movie um, talking about the original and the remake, the the spoiler free kind of plot of the movie is um, a soldier is injured and finds himself in a house full of women okay. and begins to flirt with and or hook up with and or manipulate several of them. Okay. So Don Siegel, director of hair, uh, dirty Harry, dirty hair. Yep. Yeah. Okay. This is a movie that he made with Eastwood after dirty Harry or before dirty Harry. Ooh, I believe it's after. Okay. Okay. All right. And okay. So, I remember hearing about the Beguile, but I had never seen the original and had not seen the Sofia Coppola version of the film. So if you were to say, Dana, you should watch this one first, be, which one would you recommend? I'm sorry. Just to answer your question real quick. They yep. came out the same year. They came out 71. Both 71. Okay. Dirty, Dirty Harry and the Beguile. Um, I would honestly say start with the Don Siegel one. Okay. Because I think it lays the groundwork for the story in an interesting way. And I think it's the way that the story is remembered and was sort of socially acceptable for 40 years. And then I think it's interesting to see Sofia Coppola riff on that, uh, with a much more sort of modern feminist perspective. Okay. Awesome. Thank you. I appreciate that. Uh, Adam, your thoughts on the beguiled. Uh, yeah, I saw it opening night. I'm a huge Sofia Coppola fan. Um, I remember it, I did myself a disservice of reading too much about it before seeing the movie. So it's not like I knew what the plot, you know, beats were, but I had read that they shot the movie in the mansion that they shot, like some of the Beyonce's lemonade videos. And the whole time I just kept thinking it was a Beyonce music video. Um, and I was just like, come on, ladies, let's get in formation. And it's like, that's not the way that you want to be watching a movie about feminism. Um, so I, I did go back. I, they, at the music box locally, uh, a rep theater in the Chicago area, um, they did a Sofia Coppola series. So I revisited a lot of her movies. Um, the, the Beguiled was one of them, and I liked it a lot more on the second viewing. I think for me, it's not one of my favorites of hers, but I do love a lot of the performances in it, and I think that it's a beautiful-looking movie, and it's a haunting movie. Um, it's got just some real great uh, mood setting. And uh, one thing I'm not sure if we talked about is there's also a not just a male female dynamic that's kind of at odds with each other but also 
Um, Colin Farrell's character in the Sofia Coppola movie is um, a uh, runaway soldier from the north, and he's holed up in a mansion basically with southern bells <laughs> so okay. um there's a lot of tension there in you know there's troops that like do patrols and like the women could give him up at any time and he sort of has to like as patrick mentioned manipulate and curry favor with them but not like get too involved with one or the other because it might you know cause them to be jealous of one another and some of the women see him as an escape and some of the women see him as like somebody that they can sleep with because they're sort of like pent up and their sexuality is burgeoning and things like that. And they're lonely. So I think it's a real, a real interesting movie. Um, I love the Sofia Coppola movies that I think are more um, like young person writing in a diary <laughs> and i think that uh the beguiled is one of her movies that feels much more kind of adult and has a lot more um kind of thoughts and emotions that are more just grown up and complex and uh and everything like that so it's it's a really good movie though awesome all right perfect so i uh, just ask this question have you seen have either you or patrick seen her latest movie priscilla yeah, we both have. Yeah, and that's right. Yep, so it's a ringing endorsement for both of you? It's one of my favorites of the year. Okay. It's a recommendation for me. I want to see it again, but I did like it a lot. Okay, awesome. Awesome, perfect. All right, so we're on to uh, we're on to 2018. Adam? Den of Thieves. Okay. Uh, a movie that I really didn't have any intention of seeing until I found out it was two and a half hours long. And then I was just like, what the fuck? A two and a half hour Gerard Butler movie? And like Pablo Schrader or like Schreiner is like the co-liber. Schreiber's bro. Yeah. Oh, is it? Okay. And I'm just like, what? And then I found out, I don't know who said it, but like somebody said that it was Redbox Heat. And I was just like, well, I need that. <laughs> and I watched it um, the opening weekend in a the theater, and it was the action movie I had been wanting to see for several years that like just kind of didn't exist anymore. Um, I found it so funny that like 50 Cent and Cheddar Bob are in it, but it's like <laughs> they're, t- they're treated with the importance and seriousness of Tom Sizemore <laughs> or, um, you know, Danny Trejo and Heat and stuff like that. And I just think that it's um, such a fun movie. Uh, like, they're, the uh, Gerard Butler character is, it helped me unlock Gerard Butler as an actor or as a movie star, I guess. Cause I I'd seen him in stuff where he's good before he was kind of, you know, elevated to a list status with 300. But this sort of was like, Oh no, he gets it. Like he gets that. He's kind of like, you know, a sleaze bag and stuff like that. And I think that he's so charismatic and entertaining in the Al Pacino type of proxy role in Den of Thieves. And, um, yeah, just sort of, I, I think it's just compelling just to, to watch them kind of, you know, plan out their heists and their business and stuff like that. And I not to spoil anything, but I do love that the movie sort of lands on 
they're kind of like buddies from an intramural soccer team. (laughs) And it just sort of, I find it just charming that a bunch of bros are going to watch this in a theater and they're just like, man, we should fucking do a heist. (laughs) I like, we're buds. Yeah. I, I, you're the reason I saw that movie, Adam. I, okay. I, I remember hearing you talk about it, and I think I remember you reference it as Red Box Heat. And I remember going, "Well, Heat's one of my favorite movies of the '90s. I, yeah. I, I love Michael Mann movies. I love Heat. Heat's amazing." And then yeah. I watched it, and first of all, I was shocked at how similar it was to the movie Heat. Uh, yeah, right? I don't, it's not hiding it at all. No, no. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I mean. To be fair, Heat is actually a remake of a 1989 movie called L.A. Takedown that Michael Mann yeah. also wrote and directed. So I'm like, mm-hmm. okay, well, okay, so, you know, there's, there's, you know, there's, you know, we can do this. We can get away with it. But long story short, I had a blast with the film. I really did. Mm-hmm. And it made me realize, especially at that time period, you know, we're all of that age where... We grew up on a steady diet of action movies from the 80s and the 90s. And frankly, yeah. most of those movies have started to disappear in a post-2008 world where, you know, dare I say it, MCU and all that stuff has taken over. And that's what you're getting for your action movies, uh, with the exception of the occasional Expendables films, which I still think are a bit cliche and a bit of a fad. This was just a good, honest, it was an honest to goodness, just R-rated, you know, you know, nose to the grindstone, you know, action film. And I yep. loved it. And I realized that I'm going to always love these type of movies and I need more of them. And I'm just sad that I don't get a lot of these in the theater, but I do see every Gerard Butler movie in the theater for some reason. <laughs> I don't know why I saw plane in the theater I mean, and I just, I, and it was, I saw plane in the theater and it was packed. The theater was packed when I saw it. I don't know who said it, but I remember there was a quote going around like a couple years ago and um, it was like, we're here. It was like a filmmaker saying like, you know, we're here, we're on set. So why not just make it really good? And that's sort of how I felt about Den of Thieves. It's like if you had the movie Armored or the movie Takers, like a Screen Gems programmer. And it's like from day one and every day after, they're just like, what if we made this just like 25% better than that? And it paid off. It's a really, I think also just the surprise of it, it just disarms you. um, And you kind of rally around a movie that you just had low expectations of, or like a certain expectation of, and then you're just like, oh, they're really giving a shit. And like, you kind of are won over by it. Yeah, absolutely. Patrick. Patrick. On yeah, I, I like this movie. Um, I was kind of so-so on it the first time I saw it, and then I, again, find myself inclined to revisit it, and the last time I revisited it was like I was sick and I was awake all night, and so I watched the whole thing, and I was like, no, this movie's so entertaining. I love that somebody was like, what if we did Heat, but they were all pieces of shit, and I <laughs> thought that was interesting. Uh, Gerard, but- this is maybe my favorite Gerard Butler performance yes. Ever and I think the action is really well done. I think there's a twist that I don't love, but whatever, I don't care. I like the actor involved. 
um, with the twist. I like all the actors in the movie, really. Um, yeah, it's just it's really solid, and it's 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 one of those movies that it's been cool to see people kind of discover since it came out. Because I mean, it did okay when it came out, but it wasn't like a big blockbuster. And then slowly everyone has been like checking it out. Oh, and then it has developed enough of a following to where now there's a sequel that's coming out. Yeah. Um, which it's I'm on board the, for. Yeah. It's also the type of movie that you can recommend to people at work. And that always comes in handy because <laughs> like so often people will know that I'm like a movie person and they're just like, Hey Adam, did you see that fucking hangover movie? And it's just like, <laughs> Oh God. Or like a VP will be like, what do you think of now you see me? And then I know I have to be like, oh, it's good. Because if I say it's a piece of shit, then like I'm not going to get into emerging leaders. So it's um, Dead of Thieves is one where if somebody like gives me the shittiest movie and they like love it and they want to talk about it, I'd be like, man, have you seen Den of Thieves? And we can find common ground again. Yeah. Oh, it's like when somebody says to me, oh, you do a podcast all about movies, huh? Have you done an episode on the Boondock Saints? I'm like, no, not yet. But yeah. watch Den of Thieves if you want to see a good action movie. There you go. Perfectly set. So uh, let's see. That means we're now on to, wait, we're in 2018, right? Yes. Yeah. All right. So we're, we're to you now, Patrick, for your 2018. Oh, boy. Um <clears throat> My last uh, pick was a remake. My pick for this one is a remake. It's not one of my favorite movies of the year. Honestly, I only picked it because I feel like talking about this director because he's in the public consciousness right now because he has a movie out called Thanksgiving. I picked Eli Roth's remake of Death Wish, which is a largely ignored and in many ways justifiably ignored remake starring Bruce Willis and Elizabeth Shue. Um I think at the time, everyone was looking for, like, Eli Roth to put his stamp on Death Wish. And he comes from horror and exploitation, and people were like, oh, he's going to make a really grimy, really sleazy throwback to Death Wish. And we kind of already got that with James Wan and Death Sentence. Um, I think... With some distance, I've come to appreciate Eli Roth's remake. And it's probably still my least favorite Eli Roth movie, which is to say I still like it. Uh, I don't think he's made a movie that I don't like, even though this one might be at the bottom. But I think some perspective is important. I think he was trying to direct it a little more anonymously. I think he was trying to prove that he could be kind of a journeyman uh, for hire studio filmmaker and direct a star vehicle with some action and some thrills and some violence um, and maybe build a career doing that. And there's lots of filmmakers who've done that, that I like Eli Roth, I think is better suited to making Eli Roth movies. And I think hopefully he's figuring that out. I mean, Thanksgiving suggests that he has, but I mean, then he made house with the clock in its walls and that is also sort of anonymous but a good example of its genre um, and death wish is just kind of like a decent example of its genre. Adam and I have talked before about the remake and suggested that it would be a better movie if Bruce Willis switched places with Vincent D'Onofrio. And if Vincent D'Onofrio was the lead of the movie, yeah. instead of playing Bruce Willis's brother. Um, and I, I fully support that idea because 
I would believe Vincent D'Onofrio as a guy who goes crazy and starts murdering people. And Bruce Willis, it's a little yeah. harder to take. Um, but I like this movie. And if I get two people to check it out, then I'll be happy. It, and it's interesting because I'll just put a couple, just a little side story here. So my girlfriend and I, I just want to say like when we first started dating, people always like, how'd you know, how'd you know that you guys were going to end up in a, in, in a pretty serious relationship? Well, the first time she invited me to her place, she was going to make dinner and we were going to watch a movie together. And as you know, we're kind of hanging out in her kitchen and she's like, why don't you just put something on? Why don't you just put a movie on while I'm making dinner and then we'll figure out what we're going to watch. And I'm like, well, what, what do you want to watch? She's like, I don't know. Why don't you put on death wish three? And I said, Oh, Okay, well, this is the woman I'm going to end up marrying. I, Did you propose? Right I, I'm just saying, right there and there, I said, okay, okay, and and so so that's. But we were ironically enough watching Death Wish two before I started recording this podcast with you. Oh wow! And I say that because right before she put it on, I said, now this is the really heavy one. I said, this is the one that they haven't figured it out. Michael Winter hasn't figured it out yet. Like it's it's pretty bad. I say because I'm a big fan of the Death Wish series. Always have been. I think one of the reasons why the original Death Wish works so well is because Charles Bronson, yes, he was in, you know, action films prior to that, but he sort of just has that appearance of sort of an everyman. Whereas Bruce Willis is Bruce Willis. Eventually you become too big of a movie star that you just see the actor, you never see the character. The Rock is always The Rock in whatever movie he's ever going to be in for the rest of From Here Till Eternity. So that, that took me out of it just a little bit. I was expecting a far more gory film, a la Eli Roth. Um, I hate to use, I hate to borrow your line, but it's fine. You know, the Death Wish movie for me, it was fine. I saw it once in the theater. I, 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 it, it was, I left. I was like, oh, that was, that was interesting. I've never revisited it, but I think I need to. I think I need to give it another another watch. I didn't walk out of the theater going, well, that was awful. And I don't know, that's not it just it was it was what it was. And yeah. I I can't sit here and say, no, no, don't watch that film, because my reaction was I was thoroughly engaged the entire time I was watching the film. So I haven't thought of it since you brought it up, but I'm going to watch it again. Well, it is a little generic, and it shouldn't be, given the movie that it's remaking, given the auteur behind it. Um, It should be something other than what it is, but after seeing it once and being sort of not moved by it, I did revisit it and was like able to appreciate it as kind of a slick piece of product, you know? Yeah, no, that's that's exactly it. So I'm glad that you had sort of the same reaction your first time watching as it I did as I did. So I'm I'm definitely that's you know I mean we watch her and I watch movies like this all the time. So I'm, tomorrow night I'm still like, hey, we're watching we're watching the Bruce Willis Death Wish. That's going to be our Monday night movie. Adam, I know you guys mm-hmm. have talked about this film before, but just to recap your thoughts. <laughs> uh, yeah, I wasn't really a big fan of it, but um, I remember thinking there's a scene near the beginning where Bruce Willis, Elizabeth Shue, Vincent D'Onofrio, and I forgot what her name was. Uh, She's an actor who was dating Leonardo DiCaprio for a while. Um, She's the Bruce Willis and Elizabeth Shue's daughter in that movie. Um, They're eating, they're in a restaurant, they're eating deep dish pizza. And I thought to myself, 
I want to see this movie. <laughs> deep dish pizza lunch the movie with these four people um and then when death wish was happening i was like fuck can i just watch deep dish pizza the movie um i it doesn't matter who death wish 3 is different because it's so bonkers yeah death i haven't seen the original death wish with charles bronson but like death sentence I'm glad Patrick brought that up is one of the most challenging, hard to watch movies for me that I've ever seen. Um, And death wish. I think I was relieved that it was more generic than death sentence in a weird way. um, Because I just have trouble with any premise where it's like, we're going to fridge the hero by killing the most adorable woman ever, whether it be, Kelly Preston or Elizabeth Shue. And it's just like, I don't, the fun is gone. And unless you have something really profound to offer in return, I don't care to wallow in that movie's brand of ugliness. Um, And I'm a hypocrite because there's other movies like where they're ugly, but they go for it like The Mist or like Terrifier 2 and stuff like that. I've got no problem. It's just maybe a matter of tone. I don't know. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I, I would be interested to rewatch death wish more just to see it reframed with the new history of Bruce Willis and just kind of see if I would be more kind to it and find something out out of it that I didn't at the time. Because one of the things I was talking about with Rob and like a reserve seating video a few weeks ago is like, I was really hard on some of Bruce Willis's direct to video work because I chalked it up as something different than what the actual cause of what yeah. we saw on screen was. And I wonder if, um, you know, I would, it would reframe the movie in a way for me, but um, yeah, I mean, I, I like that Eli Roth is taking chances that he's trying different stuff out that he's not just, you know, happy uh, or not, not that he should, he needed to be unhappy with it, but that he wants to be a filmmaker of multiple genres and not just, feel like he only can do horror um when he has other interests so yeah i don't know it's something i'll give another try but yeah it's not one of my movies so to speak yeah okay awesome awesome well all right so we're on to 2019 adam uh i picked another movie that kind of snuck up on me where like i liked it opening night and then i put it away and then i went back to it a couple years ago and really liked it a lot more and that is alexander aja's crawl which is um, just this really kind of tight, mean little thriller um, about uh, a hurricane causing flooding. I think it's in Florida. Oh, yeah. 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 Yeah, It's in Florida. Um, And then, you know, alligators uh, start kind of circling a house where Barry Pepper is kind of trapped uh, in the basement. And then, um kaya scotelario is the daughter and she has to you know she's not hearing from her dad and that's weird so she goes to see to check up on him and then she discovers him kind of trapped you know on the on the basement level and she's trying to free him and then you know 30 minutes into the movie we see that he's kind of pinned down um with alligators kind of on his tail and it's just such a cool survival movie. Um, and I really like 
movies that put you into that situation and you have to think along with the lead character of like oh no don't do that or this is what i would do or i have no idea how she did that i could never do that and things like that um and then it just builds to like some really clever stuff like just really interesting set pieces where you know you might see like a 200 million dollar movie where you know, an entire city is on fire and like people are going through buildings and cars are jumping off of roofs and things like that. And you're just like zoned out. It's just like whatever. Yeah. But it's something in Crawl where it's just like, how do I trap an alligator into a shower? <laughs> <laughs> it's like riveting. And um, I love the dynamic between father and daughter. It's not something that you see all that often in a survival movie or a horror movie. Um, and I love just kind of, yeah, like she, she, you know, you, it's, it's somebody who's, who survives their ordeal, but like goes through a lot of, you know, goes through hell and back to get through it and stuff like that. And it's, uh, it's just a cool movie. It's a really, really fun movie to watch. I've, I've actually never seen it and it's just, I can't explain why I live in Florida Alligators are a real thing where I'm from. You, yeah. you, anyone that lives here knows that any, literally any natural body of water in Florida, it could be a pond, it could be a lake, any of them, uh, there's alligators in there. Now, you may not see them, but they're there. And, you know, neighbors down the street had an alligator in their pool, you know, six months ago. So these are, and that might be one of the reasons why I didn't want to watch it, because I'm just like, yeah. you know, that's a, that's a real thing for us here in Florida. Although... No, I don't know anyone who's actually ever been attacked by an alligator, so I'll just leave it there. But I haven't seen it yet, but based on your recommendation, I will give it a watch. Patrick? Yeah, it's it's super good. It's uh, I'm mixed on Alexander Aja. You know, he'll make a movie like uh, his Here. Hills Have Eyes remake, and, I, and I'll be like, uh, <laughs> that was pretty good, you know? And then he makes three in a row that I'm just like, oh, I didn't really care for that. Uh, and mm-hmm. then he comes out with Crawl, which it helps. He's working with Sam Raimi, you know, and maybe he has a heavy producerial hand. Uh, but it goes back to what Adam was saying about Den of Thieves. It's just like, what if they sat down and said like, okay, we're going to make this movie about alligators in the basement. What if we made it really good? Yeah. And that doesn't happen enough anymore. I mean, this is a, a thing that we keep coming back to on if this movie, unfortunately, is talking about, you know, kind of the state of modern movies. And it's not that anybody sets out to make a bad movie, but there's all these other concerns beyond the quality of the movie sometimes it's appealing to the right quadrants sometimes it's about just finishing the movie on time sometimes it's about satisfying shareholders sometimes it's about visual effects but a lot of times you don't feel like somebody sat down and said okay but what if we made it really good and in the case of crawl it really feels like every single aspect of that movie people took their jobs really seriously and really wanted to do good work and they do good work. It's a really good movie. That's that is a ringing endorsement from both of you. So I might add that to the top of the list of the, of the I movies. Saw an I saw opening see. night after seeing Stuber and it makes it all look <laughs> even better. So I might recommend you do that. You watch Stuber and then you will have 
no hope for movies and then you'll watch <laughs> crawl and it'll come right back to you i love that that's awesome so 2019 adam so 2019 patrick my 2019 pick i, I i'm realizing that so many of my picks are movies that were not on my top 10 lists <laughs> Uh, they're movies that like I either want to talk about now or that I like more with some distance. Um, it's Hustlers from 2019, the Lorene Scafaria movie about uh, sort of based on a true story about some uh, dancers uh, at a strip club who start conning men out of money basically by drugging them and stealing from them. Um, I think part of it is because I was, you know, deliberately trying to choose some, because I, you know, my last movie was a fucking Eli Roth remake. I'm like, well, I should probably pick something directed by a woman. Uh, and part of it is because I've been, I re rewatched money train a few days ago and oh, I've been on a real geez. JLo high. Uh, so, um, and this I think is her best performance. A lot of people really thought she was going to be a lock for best supporting actress for this movie. Um, she's really terrific in it. I think the whole ensemble is very good. Constance Wu, uh, Lily Reinhardt, Kiki Palmer. I think they're all good at what they're asked to do. I think it's a really interesting movie. Again, sort of dealing with some of the fallout of Me Too. I think it's an even better movie about capitalism and sort of gig economy um i think it has a lot to say inside of just being a pretty entertaining movie and featuring one of the funniest smash cuts in recent years where they accidentally inhale a bunch of drugs and pass out uh it's a movie i like more the further away i get from it okay hustlers uh i'll add that to the list again I, I, this is uh, this is why I wanted you both on here because I All knew right, I yeah. was going to get some recommendations of some films that I hadn't seen yet. Remember the marketing campaign for this when it came out? I was still going to the movies a lot, even in 2019. That is, we can. That's on a subject I want to get to right now. I've been to the movies twice this year, so um, my disillusionment. Uh, I saw John Wick four and Oppenheimer in the theater. Well, very good. Yeah. I will admit the John Wick 4, the runtime did wear on me a little bit, but ironically, the Oppenheimer didn't. <laughs> that makes mm, any I can sense. see that. Uh, you know, with, with, with John Wick 4, it was just at one point, you know, I look, I kind of checked my watch. And I'm like, all right, we're at the two hour, 10 minute mark. And he's getting into another skirmish, even <laughs> though we know exactly where he has to go. And I was just like, it just eventually, it, I, I loved it, but it was just like, okay, I just got to. Look, the first John Wick movie is an hour and 37 minutes. Enough said. So, If I could play devil's advocate about the runtime of John Wick Chapter 4, he's going through a lot for your entertainment value. The <laughs> least you could do is sit in a chair and not complain about it, Dave. Like, where do you get off, maybe, is the question? And I... He said he's getting into another... <laughs> And I had forgotten. I'd only seen John Wick uh, 3 one time. I forgot about the bulletproof suits. And I was just like, oh, what's going on here? Am I, I must be missing something. Is he uh, like supernatural or something? And then I, it, it dawned on me that they had the bulletproof suits. So yeah. I was talking about how I, I remember the marketing campaign for Hustlers, but had, yeah. hadn't seen it yet. So, uh, but a perfect time to see what you thought about the movie, Adam. I saw it once at the Alamo Draft House in L.A., and it was right before I had to, like, catch a flight home. 
and it was a red eye and i remember being very distracted so like i uh liked jennifer lopez stripping to fiona apple i thought that was cool and then the rest of the movie happened and i was thinking about <laughs> when should i leave to go to lax so the alamo draft house in relation to lax is where uh, I don't know, maybe like a half hour away. Oh, okay. the, the draft house is in downtown Los Angeles. Oh. LAX is over in like what Inglewood? Yeah, area. well, it's yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's that's drive. Depending on yeah. traffic, I'd stress out about that too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. But I'm still going to watch Hustlers because it was a recommendation from Patrick. So I, I have... watch it after Stuber. <laughs> I'm just going to watch Stuber every you day watch this Stuber week. Stuber as the aperitif to every movie yeah. is. Uh, and then everything's going to seem great. Exactly. <laughs> Perfect. All right. So now we're on to 2020. Uh, let's see. Uh, I don't even want to get into the particulars of that one. I did an entire three-month run of episodes called the Lockdowns, Lockdown Sessions, which I believe both of you were a part of uh, yeah. at, what, at one point. And I appreciate you guys being on there. Um, it feels so long ago, yet it's so fresh in my memory, those uh, uh, 2020 it was a different time. Um, theaters were, for the most part, after March, closed for the rest of the year. Uh, we were privy to a lot of movies uh, day and date uh, uh, through a lot of different uh, streaming services. So there was a lot to choose from in 2020. But, uh, uh, Adam, I'll, I'll go with you with your 2020 pick. Uh, I picked Let Him Go, which is a uh, thriller with Diane Lane and Kevin Costner and Leslie Manville. And uh, the plot of that one basically is um, Diane Lane and Kevin Costner's son dies in a freak accident. Um, he has a, a, a child with a woman that they don't know very well. Um, and then the woman um, sort of gets forced by her matriarch and family to uh live with them and bring the kid with them and cut out the diane lane and kevin costner characters they basically lay claim to both the daughter and their and their grandson um and the um leslie manville character and jeffrey donovan's her son and stuff that family is like the epitome of evil <laughs> it's just evil personified and Diane Lane and Kevin Costner have to figure out a way to rescue their grandson from turning into these people and just from having to live with them. Um, and it is such a primal experience as a movie. It's something where you see this sweet kid and like these grandparents that just love their grandson so much and they miss their son and like this is kind of like their way of keeping their son alive in small part and they just know from the outset that there's something wrong with this extended family and that they have to bring their their grandson back and raise them themselves and um it's just sort of like that classic like heart of darkness type of thing where like you have to go to hell and back in order to save a loved one and um as i mentioned before i mean it's just such a primal experience like diane lane and kevin costner are so great as heroic figures to root for um and uh yeah you it is one of those types of movies where like maybe like a death wish where you kind of as an audience member get like sort of a bloodlust where you're just kind of like 
fuck these people up, <laughs> get get them out of there. Um, so it's just a really tight, exciting, scary thriller. And I think it features like some of the best work of like Diane Lane and Kevin Fastner's careers. Nope. Um, so I think it's very underseen. It kind of got buried because of 2020. Um, it played in theaters, but then like was one of those movies that kind of came out on VOD like three weeks later. Um, but I haven't heard many people talk about it since then. And I think that it's sort of like an unsung movie of the decade. Uh, I, I remember briefly remember the film, but obviously for, for, I mean, but for obvious reasons, it just got lost in the sea of everything that was going on in 2020 and, and hadn't even thought about the film, uh, until you mentioned it, for some reason, I still picture the movie poster, which just has, you know, Kevin Costner and Diane Lane on it looking distraught. If I remember, yeah, yeah, they have that, good that, reason. yeah, absolutely. Patrick, your thoughts on the movie. Yeah. The poster doesn't do this movie justice. The title doesn't really do this movie justice. COVID certainly didn't do this movie <laughs> justice. It's so good. Um, I just checked. It's actually streaming on freebie. If anybody wants to yeah. watch oh, it nice. with commercials, which is not ideal because it is a very tense movie and you don't want that broken up by like commercials for some fucking pharmaceutical, but it is such a good movie, um, and I completely agree that Costner and Diane Lane are so good in it. Uh, I remember watching it with Erica, my wife, and both of us, uh, her especially, she gets very into movies, and she was like freaking out near the end because it's so tense. Um, it's one of these movies that, like, we just talked about this last week on our Micho Black episode where uh micho black and collateral and i would include let him go on that list where it's like it opens with this relationship and the actors are so good and their relationship is so compelling that i just want to watch that movie and you kind of forget that like oh we have to get into this whole like get the baby back plot line um which is great and super compelling but like it's a testament to just how good diane lane and kevin costner are that I could just watch a movie about them being married and him trying not to smoke. Am I remembering that correctly? I don't remember it too well. I I remember that they do have like a lot of cool examples of like a marriage at play where, yeah. it's, you know, uh, he I think it's drinking, not smoking. Is it drinking? Okay. Yeah, I think it's drinking. Um, But there's a lot of stuff where it's like they both agree on like the end goal. They need to get this kid back, but they don't agree like on the way to do it. Right. And like wet and they have like scenes where, you know, they're in a hotel room and they're waiting for something or they're like scheduled to go over there. And it's just like, well, what do I do when this happens? Or like, why would you do it that way? Or if like, if you do it that way, then this is going to happen next and stuff like that. And the thing that's so exciting about it is the moment you get into that house it's like the quote where Mike Tyson once said, like, everybody has a plan until you get punched in the mouth. <laughs> and then it's just like, once you get into that house, it's just like, oh, fuck, like anything could happen. Awesome. It's really good. Oh, I'm excited yeah. to watch that one. So that's Let Him Go. That's your 2020 pick. Patrick, your 2020 pick. I feel bad because Adam keeps... Uh suggesting really good movies and then i keep <laughs> suggesting movies that only i like and he has to like field it and be like i don't know it's not for me <laughs> but uh whatever patrick he doesn't want to shit on my pick so he's just what, like what do you got buddy tenet i got tenet um oh, a movie that i think got lots got to say about that yeah done super dirty by covid um i think 
had it been released under normal circumstances, it would have been a big hit. I, I think it's one of Christopher Nolan's most flawed movies. I'm not making a case for it as a masterpiece or even a sneaky masterpiece, but I do think it's good and underseen. I think in a lot of ways it's his most personal movie um, because it's really just about being a Christopher Nolan movie. And I like when filmmakers do that. I remember seeing Black Hat by Michael Mann and reviewing it and just calling it Michael Mann porn. Uh, and Tenet is Christopher Nolan porn. It's it's uh, it's just him doing a riff on James Bond and uh, messing around with chronology and editing and high science fiction concepts. And it's, it's all this stuff that he's interested in, um, in a movie that's a little bit inscrutable. I've seen it a couple times and I won't pretend to fully understand all of it. I get enough of it that I can follow it. Um, but it says something that I want to keep going back to it. Um, and it bums me out that I never got to see it in a theater. I know Adam saw it in a weird circumstance that I'll let him explain, but, uh, someday I hope to like show this for like a smash cut screen just so I can see it in a theater. Cause I never have. So I had one of those. Okay. I'm not going to get into the politics of 2020. All I'm going to say is I live in the state of Florida. So if you understood what was going on in America in 2020, you understood that, Whatever preventative measures were put in place in Florida, they lasted for about three days and then they were just yanked. So when Tenet hit movie theaters, it was playing at my local Regal Cinema. And I braved, this was August of 2020, and I put a mask on and made the trip to the theater, to the IMAX theater, and had it. Almost to myself, I think there was one other person sitting in a 300-seat auditorium on the other end. So I saw this opening day in the theater and immediately can verify that the audio issues were real and present, uh, especially in IMAX. Um, Having said that, I left the theater really kind of like, well, that was cool. Can't wait to see that again. Um, and then it was quickly yanked from theater. So I didn't get an opportunity to see it again, but I sat on that movie from August all the way to December when it finally kind of got like a VOD and ended up on HBO max and couldn't talk to anyone about it for like three months. And that was one of the most frustrating, you know, three months for a movie guy to be able to say to all my friends, well, I've seen Tenet. (laughs) And I can't talk to you about it because I don't want to spoil anything. I've actually seen putting the Dark Knight movies in its own category. uh, Tenet is actually the Nolan film I've seen the most. I think I've seen it at least six times. Um, I, I thoroughly enjoy the movie. I enjoy the challenge of the film. I enjoy sort of peeling back the layers every time I watch it and kind of had a better understanding. Oh, okay. I know exactly what's going on. But I will end it by saying this. After six times seeing this movie, I'm thoroughly convinced that Sir Michael Caine had no idea what he was talking about when he has the (laughs) meeting with John David Washington. Not a clue. Not a clue. All right. Just it just uh, Michael, read these lines, because I'm telling you, it just (laughs) it's and I love Michael Caine, but I'm just saying he did not know anything he was talking about. (laughs) So, Adam, I know you saw Tenet in the drive-in or on the side of a wall or there it is on the side of a wall yeah. <laughs> um 
I wanted to see it really badly just because at that point I had not been to a movie in five months. Um, but I was not, you know, in the position where I felt like I was comfortable to go inside of a theater, even with a mask on. So I was going to the drive-in a lot. Um, and the drive-in by us was playing older movies, like classics and stuff, um, and not newer movies. So I was bummed, but then I saw an opportunity to drive like 30 minutes away to a Regal theater. And they said that they were going to have like an outdoor screening of Tenet. And it was basically like a projection against the side of a brick wall. Um, it was very weird. Um, I was in a parking, in the parking lot of the theater. It was next to a country Western bar that was open. So like I would hear like, charlie daniels band mixed with tenet very strange um i will say it was the best experience watching the movie in terms of the audio experience because i was listening to the dialogue on an am fm portable radio that i had in my car and whatever noise bleed from the sound effects does not come through on the am fm portable radio um but I watched it and I remember giving up very early and then just sort of staring at it because I was just like, well, I lost the thread and I can't. And the picture projected on the building was about as clear as watching the movie on the back of an airplane seat. Yeah. So it was just a headache to watch it that way. Um, so I knew I needed to watch it again when it came out on digital rental so i did that and i it's a situation where i just for me at least up to this point i just don't think the juice is worth the squeeze like if i'm gonna i'll do the work but i want it to be something that i get value out of by the end of it and um this movie and to a lesser extent inception which i like enough but i've never loved i just feel like it's going through a lot of narrative hoops and asking a lot of the audience. And I feel like it doesn't really resonate for me on any type of level other than as a puzzle. And I think that Memento is the best example of that in his, in his deck of cards, so to speak. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. And I think hot take of the show, I think John David Washington is one of the worst leading men in Hollywood right now. And I think that that almost single-handedly sinks the movie completely. Okay, so let me ask you real quick. I have, I've seen it available now. The Creator, yes or no? Worth a watch? I haven't seen it. No, I haven't, I haven't seen, seen it. it. I haven't seen it. Okay, just you said John David Washington, and I've heard, I've just heard The Creator is an interesting movie because it was made by by today's standards for a pretty modest budget. But all right, we'll get yeah. back to that. Okay, so that was. Um, that was 2020. All right, Adam. Yeah. 2021. Uh, I will go with Wrath of Man, uh, uh, Jason Statham's vehicle. Um, I did not have high expectations of it because it was a just it was just advertised as a Jason Statham programmer, and um, Guy Ritchie directing it didn't mean a whole lot to me at that point. Like I had liked some of his movies here and there. Like I thought the gentleman was pretty entertaining. That was 
his movie prior to it. It's not great, but it was fine. Um, but Wrath of Man is like a whole other different kind of beast. And uh, it it would be a really good double with Den of Thieves. There's this, just these like armored car, shoot 'em up, heist type things. But the thing that I loved about Wrath of Man was it was so many different things all in one movie. Where, like, if you want a heist movie, you've got a heist movie. If you want a gangster movie, you've got a gangster movie. If you want, like, a shootout, you know, action movie, like, you've got a shootout action movie. And um, it just felt like the best, like, there's the saying, you know, you want to be watching a movie where you know you're in good hands with the filmmaker. And it's like, this is the movie that I didn't know that Guy Ritchie was born to make. And it's just incredible. It's exciting. The action sequences are super impactful. It has like Josh Hartnett in a weird supporting role where he's like a doofus and yet is like really good at it. And it's funny to see that because he was so like, he was the high status lead actor in so many movies for such a long time. Um, uh, I can't remember the guy's name. It's like Holt something. McCallany or something like McCallany. that. He's so good in it. It's so good. It's like one of those movies that like is so good that it elevates like otherwise not great actors like Scott Eastwood. It's just like, oh, <laughs> you crack Scott Eastwood. Just make a put him in a part where I'm not supposed to like him and he's fantastic. <laughs> so, um, yeah, this was another one where this was right when I was coming back to theaters. Um, this was in 2021. This was like the first weekend of May. I had started going back in like late April of 2021 back to the movies. And it was like such a great welcome back to the movies. And then I saw Billy Crystal and Tina, Tiffany Haddish's here today. And I was like, Oh, they're not all great. <laughs> uh, Wrath of man is a, is a phenomenal film and it's not lost on me that it's, it's Guy Ritchie working with a, a basically a $40 million budget. And Guy Ritchie has had the opportunity to work with, you know, a few hundred thousand to make lock stock to endless, you know, endless funds and resources when he's making films for Disney. Um, I think he's at his best when he's constrained. You know, it's like, hey, you got this is you get 40 million to make this movie. And you know, filmmakers, I think, sometimes are at their best when they're when they're when they're, they're they put limits on them and they say, "Hey, you can only work with this. You're not getting a dollar more." And that was kind of my takeaway from the film. I thought it was the action scenes were excellent. I just overall thought it was a great movie. I have never been on the Statham train. Jason mm, Statham yeah, for me. I wouldn't say that I am either. Really, he, he was always oh the guy from. The early Guy Ritchie movies. I said that. The guy from the early guy. Okay. The guy, the man from the early Guy Ritchie movies back in the mm. day. Um, and I never got into, what was this movie? Uh, the, what, what, Transporter. Transporter. Yeah. And also, never, I've never seen those movies. They've never, they've never really uh, you know, been something I wanted to watch. So it was Guy Ritchie's name that got me to see Wrath of Man. It was his name. I was like, oh, I'm going to give it a try because he's doing, oh, it's a crime movie. Guy Ritchie, done. I'm in. I'm going to give it a watch. So, Patrick, your thoughts on it? Uh, Wrath of Man, 
fucking rules. It's really good. Um, it's I I don't review a ton of new releases anymore because Rob does that so much yeah. on our site. But um, this was one of the few new releases that like I got a screening link for before it came out, and I was excited because I hadn't gone to a movie theater in a long time. But here was a chance to see a new movie at home. Um, and it's always a little intimidating to go out with an opinion when you haven't, you don't know what the temperature of a movie is at all. You know, you, you don't have anything to bounce off of when I write about a movie that came out 20 years ago, I'm bouncing off of what people's perception of that movie is and saying like, yeah, the people are right. Or I feel differently or whatever with wrath of man. I just had to come right out and say like, Oh, this is easily Guy Ritchie's best movie. Um, and I still believe that I, I hadn't liked a Guy Ritchie movie probably since Snatch, maybe, which was like, what, 2000? Yeah. Um, it had been a long time since I liked a Guy Ritchie movie. And I just think it's really well made. It's really smart in the way that it doles out information slowly. Mm -hmm. um, I think it makes a great use of Jason Statham as kind of a almost like a blank uh, whose mind is just set on one thing. Um, amazing score, great cinematography, great action, as Adam pointed out. It's really terrific. Awesome. Perfect. It was, it was weird, too, because um, I'm, I, I went in expecting a Jason Statham vehicle, and I mean this in the nicest possible way, but that sort of sets a certain expectation yeah. And when I watched the movie, I was like, oh, this is a movie that Denzel Washington could have starred in. Like, 100 percent. It's, it's good enough for like a better actor to be in. Mm -hmm. Although Statham, as you said, is like really well cast in it. And now I'm just chasing Wrath of Man with every Statham movie. So like I'm beyond excited to see the beekeeper. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. If I'm ready. Wrath of Man good. I'm ready for it. I think principal photography is as wrapped on the second Hobbs and Shaw movie. So just buckle up. I don't know it. I, I, I don't understand anything you just said. <laughs> <laughs> That's even better. All right, Patrick, your 2021 movie. Uh, finally, I arrive at a movie that I know Adam likes, and that is Emma Seligman's Shiva Baby. Yes. Uh, starring Rachel Sennett and co-written by Rachel Sennett. This was a short film that the two had made that they turned into a feature. I knew almost nothing about it when I saw it, and I was knocked out. It's one of those movies where you see it, and you immediately fall in love with the filmmaker, and you're like, oh, I'll see anything this filmmaker makes from now on, because I really love this movie. I don't deal well with like the comedy of awkwardness, uh, but I think it's done so well here that I'm able to watch it. I think Emma Seligman and Rachel Sennett like, thread the needle so well between what is uncomfortable and what is genuinely funny um, that I'm able to get through it because sometimes when something's too uncomfortable, I literally will get up and leave the room or like change the channel or whatever. Um, yeah. And I just think it's a lot of story threads that come together. I think the, the actors playing her parents, I don't remember their names, but especially the dad who shows up in a lot of Coen brothers stuff. Uh, is I think he's so funny. I think Rachel Sennett is like a born movie star. Um, 
I didn't even mention Molly Gordon, Adam. I'm sorry. Molly Gordon, of course, in the movie. I was going to do it if you didn't. (laughs) Killing it in a supporting role. Um, Yeah, just a great comedy that that harkens back to like the kinds of I've been watching a lot of um, mid 90s movies lately. And there was the birth of this type of indie movie around 1995 that doesn't get made too much anymore. Shiva baby feels like a real throwback to like a certain kind of nineties indie. And I mean that in the best way possible, uh, really, really strong. And, and the fact that then they followed it up with bottoms this year is proof that like, this is a, this is a director star slash screenwriter pairing to really pay attention to. Okay. So I'm just going to say real quick, um, uh this movie comes on my radar because of F this movie. I I remember you guys talking about the film um, and it was on that list of, I've got to get around to seeing this movie. And I, I saw that bottoms was available on VOD and I was like, well, I've, I've got to watch this film, but now realizing now correlating that the two movies are by the, the same filmmaker. It's like, okay, no wait, I'm going to watch Shiva baby before I watch bottom. So I appreciate you kind of bringing that, uh, bringing that movie back to my attention because I haven't seen it, but I do remember you both talking about it on F this movie. So Adam, it is uh, currently streaming on HBO max. Okay, perfect. You could watch both movies in under three hours. <laughs> <laughs> I can make that happen. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, I love Shiva baby. Um, I, have not to the to the same you know circumstances exactly had these experiences but i've had similar experiences where you're at a an event with jewish families and you're cornered by elder folks and they're very judgy (laughs) and like the subtext is just like oh so what are you doing and it's just like you tell them and they're just like oh good for you and you just like know that they just hate what you just said and then like you go on the offensive because you're just like you're like yeah i'm a total fuck up it's great and then you just want to see their like faces go white and stuff like that it's pretty pretty great so shiva baby like tapped into that feeling for me but i just think it's so clever and interesting and funny and like it maintains like the tension of a movie like mother but is a comedy so like you get like these builds of tension, but then these releases of laughs and like, maybe it's just me and like who I'm attracted to in Hollywood, but like, it's one of the sexiest movies I've seen of like the 2020s. Um, I love that kind of lands on this like sort of secret romance behind the scenes because that also kind of speaks to the generation gap also um, of just like, just, you know, love who you love and how it's different than kind of like the, the, the generations that came before us a little bit. Um, and so what Patrick was saying about like kind of Emma Seligman and Rachel Sennett being this really great comedy team or just filmmaking team to look out for. If you compare if I would love to watch Shiva baby and then bottoms right after it, because they're so funny in such different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, cause bottoms is very much absurdist reality and Shiva baby is like heightened reality and they're equally funny. And a thing that I love about Rachel Sennett's brand of comedy, especially is like, she almost gets like double laughs on jokes because 
like I'll give you a couple of examples. Like one is um, in Bottoms, she's talking about being a feminist. And then A.O. Edaberry is just like, your favorite show is Entourage. (laughs) (laughs) And it's funny because like, She's claiming to be a feminist, but her favorite show is Entourage. But also, it's just funny that her favorite show is Entourage. <laughs> so, like, so, and then, like, they used to, her and she did, like, these Comedy Central skits, and they were talking about, like, different dating things. And it starts with ghosting, and then it just grows more and more absurd. And one is, like, she's like, have you ever been Fogo to Chowd? And the other girl's <laughs> just like, what's Fogo to Chowd? And it's like, it's when a guy invites you over and watches you eat steak for an hour. And it's funny because you're picturing that, but it's also funny that they called it Fogo to Chowd. <laughs> so that, there's so much. It's also funny that I would be willing to do that. <laughs> of course. Of course. Yeah. It's just funny, like, in all of their work. The writing is just so, so spot on. It's awesome. wonderful. That's awesome. Yeah. I can't wait to watch that film. I really can't. Uh, all right. So we are on to 2022, Adam. Okay. Um, I'm going to go with a movie that I, I didn't even uh, intend to see. But um, Rob and I have a video at the end of the year for reserve seating called Lumps of Coal, where we each pick a movie that is either a poor performer at the box office or critically um, kind of not given a lot of, a lot of uh, credit and we champion it. And Rob picked the movie fall and I did not have any intention of watching fall. And I only watched it because he recommended it and it's awesome. And it's a movie that I've watched like two or three times since the first time I've watched it. And it's just another, um, it's kind of like an open water type of movie, but instead of them being stranded in the middle of the ocean, surrounded by sharks, it's they're these like kind of daredevil rock climbers. And then they decide to climb up like a giant, like telephone tower. Almost. I can't remember exactly what the tower is, but they climb up this giant tower. That's like thousands of feet in the air. And then they like get up there and then they lose their way of getting down. And it's just a matter of like, how do we get rescued? How do we get down from here? And there's vultures like and stuff like that. And it's just another one of those movies like Crawl where you put yourself in the shoes of the protagonist and you're just like, what would I do in this situation? And then you're just kind of like shaking your head or like coaching them of like what to do or what not to do. And um especially for like a PG-13 movie. Like I haven't seen very many movies that are like this frightening um, before. And uh, I know there's a sequel coming out. I don't know if that's a good idea. seems like kind of a one and done premise, but uh, it's another movie where you're kind of won over by the two lead performances. Um, the I don't remember the actors' names, but one of the women is from Shazam and one of the women is from the 2018 Halloween and they're both very good. Um, And uh, yeah, I would just say like, if you like thrillers and just kind of like survival type of movies, this would be a good one to check out if you haven't seen it. I'm familiar with it. I haven't seen it, but uh, yeah, let me ask you a question. I haven't seen the movie, but it reminds me of a lot of films that is there the trope in the film where, they're trying to get somebody's attention at the bottom or 
You know, mm-hmm. they just barely, like, they barely miss getting someone's attention. Does, does that happen in the film? Yeah, I think there's, like, a part where, like, there's a car and they can see it and then they decide to, like, throw a shoe down okay. there with, okay. like, a note and stuff like that and try to get the person's attention. Those those parts, those tropes in those movies always give me the biggest anxiety. So, yeah, but I'll, I'm going to watch it. I'm going to watch it. All right, Patrick, your thoughts on Fall? I haven't seen it. I have wanted to see it since that reserve seating video because I take uh, Robin Adams' recommendations very seriously, but I skipped it when it was out because I've been burned by this movie so many times. I think I've liked it once, and that was Adam Green's Frozen, but otherwise I haven't totally been into this genre of movie, but I totally want to check it out. Awesome. I would say it's somewhere between like Frozen is the top. Yeah. Fall would be just underneath it. And then something like 47 meters down would be underneath that. Okay. Well, I don't love 47 meters <laughs> down. So the fact that this is better. Yeah. Gives me hope. Is I'm helping. The there sequel, the sequel to 47 meters down. Is that the one with the ghost shark in it? Maybe I just remember John Corbett was in it okay. and that it was really bad. It was like another 47 <laughs> meters down or something. I don't remember the name. 47 more 47 meters. meters down uncaged. Uncaged. That that's it. Right? Yep, that's it. Absolutely. Oh, they should have done like 46 meters down and then <laughs> we did keep coming back up to the surface. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Four meters down. <laughs> All right. So Patrick, your 2022 film. Um, I'll go with another favorite of both mine and Adam's, and that is uh, Terrifier 2. Okay. All right. Damien Leone's sequel to Terrifier, a movie I sort of actively disliked when I saw it because I was like, oh, this is not why I watch horror movies. And I've since kind of come around on it, but Terrifier 2 is much better in a lot of ways. It is, uh, it's sort of the the good, the bad, and the ugly of murderous clown movies. It's like two and a half hours. Goodness. Uh, yeah, it's long, but, um, but it doesn't feel long if that helps. Well, I take that back. The last act c- c- kind of does feel long, but again, the master stroke is that it gives you someone to root for. It gives you Lauren Lavera as Sienna, who's a great final girl. Uh, something that the original terrifier was missing. I find, uh, David Howard Thornton's performance as art, the clown, simultaneously disturbing and hilarious. Um, I think Damien Leone grew a lot as a director between the first and second movie. I love the cinematography. I love the score. I like most of the characters, uh, the gore that Damien Leone himself creates practically is kind of the best in the game right now. Um, it's, it's really impressive. It's a movie that I've seen way more times than I should ever admit. So I will say that I started the original Terrifier. This would have been, I'm not sure when the original one came out. You guys can help me out on that. A couple of years ago. Yeah, sure. So, okay. Somewhere back then. It, I, it was one of those, I was at home alone, the lights yeah, were off. And you know, I just put it on. I can't remember how I watched it. I got like through like 20 minutes of it. And it was, it's just creeping me out. I was just like, this is, and and the performance like of Art the Clown, like he's, I don't know. 
I don't know what for what for whatever reason, like I'm I'm man enough to admit, I was getting a little freaked out by the first one and said this is not going to be for me. I don't think I'm going to be able to handle watching this home alone in the dark. That being said, Terrifier 2 is not a film I have have seen nor have I been wanting to see. Uh, I've heard you guys talk about it before and the thing that scares the death scares me to death is I've heard high praise for the practical effects and that's not something that I'm going to be really good with. Like that stuff really gets me. It real like the extent of practical effects for me is 1978's Dawn of the Dead. I can tolerate that, but then they've gotten so much more sophisticated to the point where I, I it's it's just too much for me. I understand they're making a third Terrifier movie. Comes out next October. Adam, your thoughts on Terrifier 2? I loved it the first time I saw it, and I was shocked because I was not a fan of the first Terrifier, as Patrick said, for for the same reasons. Um, And then once I latched on to the final girl with Lauren Lavera and that there's a rooting interest, I found it a lot more easy to take. It was definitely a movie that I almost like had a panic attack before watching it because like I had heard and read about like I thought to prepare myself for the gore reading about it first. So I knew what was going to happen would help. And it just made me more anxious. Um, (laughs) And I honestly have only seen it the one time I uh, have tried to watch it again, but I'm afraid that it was a magic trick that I'm not going to be able. And though I I would almost not want to know, then know that like I, it was a one and done for me. So I know I'll eventually go back to it probably before Terrifier 3. Um, I think the thing that I'm still wrestling with, and I, I think the movie's very exciting and very good, and it definitely feels like a, a boost similar to Rob Zombie from House of a Thousand Corpses to The Devil's Rejects, um, or like James Cameron from like Terminator to Terminator 2 on like its own respective scale. Mm-hmm. Like it's that much of an expansion. Um, I don't, I'm trying to crack how much the filmmakers are turned on by the violence and how much of it is, um, you know, it's part of it, but that's not like what the driving force is. It's like the the character or the storytelling or whatever. And I'm hoping the answer is the latter. And it's not just that they're turned on by the violence. But when I met him at the convention, I kind of got the suspicion that he's turned on by the violence. <laughs> and I uh, sort of retreated just slightly. And the Terrifier 3 teaser, as exciting as it is that it's a Christmas movie, I am a little concerned <laughs> that I don't want them to kill children um, on screen. If it's off screen, not, that's not okay either. But <laughs> it's not <as> bad. <laughs> Um, uh, I'll find ways to excuse it, I guess, if it's off screen, but I don't know. I'm, um, I'm a big fan of the second one, but I'm also a little afraid of it. Okay. All right. Well, I'll, uh, I I, I can tell you this. I will be tuning in next year to F this movie to hear your guys' thoughts on Terrifier 3. So We've, all, we've already uh, said that that's going to be like our scary movie month episode. Oh, oh, oh okay. 
Awesome. Yeah. So let me ask you this. Do we even need to do 2023? Or are you guys both unanimously putting Exorcist Believer as the, as the movie you're <laughs> recommending for? 20? Did you watch that? No, Dana? no, I won't. There's a character. I want you to watch it. You want to know why? <laughs> Tell me why. There's a character in it who looks exactly like you. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, okay. And he's a bad dad. <laughs> oh, no. Okay. <laughs> I can't take my glasses off here for a second here. <laughs> Well, now I have to watch it, Adam. Yeah. Now, now I or have I to watch it. A, I'll just send you a photo. That <sighs> might help instead of you actually watching it. It sucks. I <laughs> I am. I, listen, I showed my, my, my girlfriend had actually never seen the original Exorcist. And uh, we had a hurricane situation here back in September where there was a hurricane get, coming through Florida. It didn't look like it was going to come anywhere near us, but as a precaution, pretty much the entire state shuts down. So we're home alone. We've got to both have the day off from work, and we decided to put the exorcist on. And, you know, she said to me, I know I'm going to enjoy this film, but let's be realistic. It's 50 years old. I'm sure it's going to be kind of hokey and a little bit, you know, dated. Trust me, I think by the time the movie's over, you're going to say, I shouldn't have said that. We watched The Exorcist. I'm seeing her reactions in real time, and she is shocked by by what's happening. And when the movie's over, she said, I was wrong, and that movie is fucking incredible. And and we had this long, like, two-hour discussion about the film, which speaks to the power of that movie some 50 years later that you can have this very in-depth discussion where we're talking about it's it's not a movie about possession it's really it's it's Chris McNeil's story and it's 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 about a an, an atheist who exhausts every possible avenue before eventually you know she wouldn't have even gone to a priest had a doctor not suggested it to her like we have this long discussion and then i see the trailer for exorcist believer and i'm like no they've missed the entire point of of the original exorcist yeah they've missed the entire point I, I will not see Well, now I have to see it because you said there's somebody that looks just like me. But other well, than that, I would have never really seen the movie. I was. I, I, I have a couple of things to say. So, Patrick, I promised to tell you what the weird thing that stuck out to me about Exorcist Believer was. I'll tell you off mic here because I okay. forgot to tell you off mic on okay. the Nietzsche Black episode. But, Dana, there's a part in Exorcist Believer that is so unbelievably dark and they just kind of skate past it because I think they're they're betting that they're going to have two more Exorcist movies. Mm-hmm. But since this one did so poorly, that if they just stop it here, that's like the most fucked up thing you could do in a movie, this type of movie. I heard you say that on the episode the other day. I yeah. remember here saying, I'm saying that was yeah. the one intriguing thing. I'm like, what is yeah. he talking about? <laughs> yeah, I don't want to spoil it, but I'll tell you guys later. But um, the thing that's cool about Exorcist for me is like, I never had the chance to like be scared by the original exorcist because i saw repossessed many times before i saw the exorcist <laughs> um but the exorcist always worked for me as a drama and i my in is always father Karras. yeah and like i always view it through his point of view and i find the movie like incredibly resonant and dramatic through that lens so even, so it's like the sixth sense, even if the horror element or the yeah. twist or whatever is is worn off. Like, I think there's a lot of meat on the bone still in the, those movies. There's there's three different movies you could make with the characters there. You could have Father yeah. Karras, you know, dealing with his, you know, uh, lack of faith. You know, I mean, there's so many things. 
I'm sorry. BJ Cobb movie yeah, cop. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I want to see a TV series called Movie Cop. I want to see the movie that Chris Chris McNeil was shooting. I want to see, you know, we only see her shoot that one scene on the college campus. But you know what, guys? I just realized we're 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 going to run a little long. <laughs> let's let's get to the 2023 movies. This is entirely my fault. I brought up The Exorcist Believer. Excuse me. Adam. Yeah. Your 2023 movie. Um, it's been, uh, I, I would say Mobland, but we've talked about Mobland a lot and we, your audience knows that you're, that we're all kind of pro Mobland. So I'm going to go with, uh, the movie, somebody I used to know on Amazon. Um, it's a romantic comedy, um, very much like my best friend's wedding, um, starring Alison Brie. Um, and the thing that I found myself enjoying a lot about it is I figured out that Alison Brie is for is like maybe the only actor forging an identity like a movie star would theatrically back in the day, but on streaming. Mm-hmm. Like I don't like there's an Alison Brie vehicle almost like every year, whether it's like Horse Girl or Spin Me Round or somebody I used to know. And you can kind of always know what you're going to get out of it. And they're always good. And she's always Mm -hmm. great in them. And um, this one is just like, in terms of a romantic comedy, it's got all the pleasures of that genre. The the leads are very likable. It's funny. Like Haley Joel Osment, I love that he's forged this little niche in his adult career where it's like, what if you were a child prodigy actor, but now you're just buffoon adult? <laughs> and he has like this great running bit where he's like the guy always quoting movies, but like it's like he'll be, um, he'll see like Allison Bree and he's like, oh, somebody called Brendan Fraser because we got a blast from the past here. And it's so like not funny that it circles back around to being funny. Or, like, he's putting, and he's just like, Beggar Vance, Beggar Vance, Beggar Vance. (laughs) (laughs) So, there's just a lot of cool stuff in it. And, like, if you're a community fan, like I was, like, Danny Pudi's in it also. So, seeing Allison Brie and Danny Pudi, like, have a bunch of scenes together um, is great. And um, it's one of the rare uh, streaming movies that doesn't feel like a streaming movie. It feels like a real movie. It's well shot. Um, It's just, uh, yeah, just a great example of the genre. And it was a movie that I kind of liked when I saw it at the beginning of the year. And then I went back to it when I was starting to do like rewatches for possible top tens. And it shot way up in my my ranking because uh, it's just the type of movie that you can put on any time. Awesome. Really good, okay. I, that keeps popping up on my Amazon. I just haven't watched it yet. So I'll... I'll put that on the list. I do want to say one thing before I go to Patrick with his uh, his pick for 2023. Uh, I cannot say enough good things about Mobland because I just want to emphasize that this is a movie that is made in the exact same system of all those, you know, all the Bruce Willis movies. These are the, the same producers, the same budget, the same 11-day shoots, the same everything, and it looks just cinematically it looks like a movie with five times the budget so i just again for for people that have listened to my interview with nicholas maggio the director you know i just i can't you know recommend that movie enough for what it is 
you know, so I'm sorry. Just want any chance I can to just, you know, pump up Mobland a little bit. I will. Um, Patrick, your 2023 movie. Uh, it's a movie that I think has, it's one of my favorite movies of the year that I think is already being forgotten and is probably destined to be forgotten. It is M night Shyamalan's, uh, knock at the cabin, which is, uh, an adaptation of Paul Tremblay's book cabin at the end of the world. I think it's called, which I have not read, uh, after I saw knock at the cabin and I read a little bit about the book and I know there's some controversy because the. The ending was changed and there were, he took a few liberties with it. Um, I actually kind of prefer the movie ending based on what I know, but maybe had I read the book, maybe the book builds me up to that ending in a way that makes more sense. And maybe I'm more a fan of the book's ending. I haven't read it. I can't say, um, but it's essentially just about a, a couple and their daughter uh, who it's, it's almost sort of a home invasion type thing. Yeah. Some people show up at their house and say the world is ending and uh, is going to end unless you do this terrible thing. Um, and I get where people might say it's a little bit repetitive because it does set up something and then plays it out a few times, but it goes back to what we were saying about 10 Cloverfield lane. I give a movie so much credit for going where it promises to go and knock at the cabin is not only very beautiful and well acted and suspenseful and tense and interesting. And I'm, I'm on board for all of it. And then to its credit, it also goes to a place that a lot of movies are a little afraid to go. And I give M night Shyamalan a ton of credit for that. I don't, I haven't loved every one of his recent movies, but I find all of them, interesting um and in many ways uh they warrant repeat viewings because i find myself coming back to them trying to find a way in even to the ones i like i didn't love glass but i've gone back and rewatched glass a couple of times because i'm like i really like m night Shyamalan. i want to find a way into this movie um i don't even need that with knock at the cabin and it was it, even on the first viewing i kind of loved it so for me knock in the cabin this is one of those rare situations where i can't honestly tell you that i ever recall this happening where i went to see this movie uh sight unseen meaning i had not seen the trailer i had not read the book i did not know the plot synopsis I went into this movie as cold as possible just because it was an M night Shyamalan movie. I said, you know what? I'm going to go watch this. All I knew was that Dave Bautista was in the movie. I knew nothing. What a fucking experience I had watching this movie because like you, Patrick, I kept saying to myself, are they really going to go for it? And I'm going to keep this spoiler free. But the scenes involving airplanes, that's all I'm going to say is, oh, they really are going for this. They really are. And again, it's one of those movies that puts you in the shoes of our, our lead characters and asks the question, what would you have done if you were in that situation? Because it is truly the most impossible situation you're being asked. I thought the movie was incredible and I remember when I left the theater, 
I sat in my car, I pulled my phone out, and I said, I'm going to watch the trailer now because I want to know how much of this movie is spoiled by the trailer. And I would tell all of you listening, if you have not seen Knock at the Cabin, do not watch the trailer. Go into the movie as cold as possible. You're going to have the best possible experience. Adam, your thoughts at Knock on the Cabin? I really liked it. Um, I... I'm a fan of M. Night Shyamalan, even when his movies are, you know, quote unquote misses. I find a lot of interesting things in them. I dislike his sensibility. He's so unique um, in his way of telling stories. Um, and yeah, when I saw Knock at the Cabin opening weekend, I immediately would say like it was my fifth favorite of his movies. Um, it's never going to budge like uh, Unbreakable Signs, Sixth Sense are always going to be rotating top three and then split and then i would say knock at the cabin um but and i mean this in a nice way but it's the reality of being an m night Shyamalan fan it was the first movie of his in a long time where i felt like i didn't need to apologize for liking it yeah Um, i felt like i could recommend it to people and not do it with qualifiers um i think it's just a really good execution of a strong thriller plot and Dave Batista is great in it. Mm-hmm. Um, the rest of the cast is like just uniformly good too. Um, but uh, he's a, the real standout. Um, and I just, I love to champion M night Shyamalan because we need more, you know, and I say this in a nice way, we need more weirdos like him where it's just like, he's, you know, what if Rod Serling was, like sort of I won't say that Rod Serling wasn't spiritual but like M. Night Shyamalan feels like he's been to the other side and came back with like an understanding of humanity that nobody else but him has (laughs) (laughs) and I don't say that like as like he's profound in one way or, or or not profound but I just say that in like he's got such a perspective of his own And him applying that to genre pieces makes him so idiosyncratic and somebody that even if you're not a fan of like his individual movies, I can't imagine like there's so many people who just have their pitchforks out for the guy. And I don't get that at all. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. Well said. Well, gentlemen, I just want to tell you before we wrap up that just to kind of circle back to something I said at the beginning of the episode and... I said that, you know, when I used to listen to F in this movie back way back in the day, more than 10 years ago, I used to say that uh, I felt like I was, you know, in the room having a conversation with these guys. So it, I just want you to know that it never, ever is lost on me that I'm in the room having a conversation with you guys. And that's such a big deal for me. So, um, I just wanted to say thank you, Adam. Thank you, Patrick. Thank you to everyone at F This Movie, the entire ensemble cast that you have. I'm a fan of everybody involved, and I just really appreciate you guys taking uh, what is looking like to be close to three hours of your time uh, just to to shoot the shit with me and, and talk movies. It's an absolute honor, guys, so thank you so much. Thank you so much. And thank you for always being so supportive and so vocal and, and such a, a great fan of the show and using it as a, 
as an inspiration to launch your own amazing podcast. So thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate that, Patrick. Yeah, and it's been just a, such a pleasure just becoming your friend uh, through the podcast. And um, yeah, I just I'm, I'm so proud of the work that you've done, Dana. And I, I love talking movies with you at any at each time, whether it's on mic or off mic. Yeah. And I, guys, I just I, again, I just I appreciate everything. That's awesome. So. So hopefully we're doing this in another 10 years. <laughs> hopefully you guys are here. You guys are, we're still, uh, we're still doing all this. So we can do the 20 year, <laughs> 20 year podcast episode. Patrick, if people want to find F this movie, there is of course links in this episode, show notes that can take them, take the listeners to your show. But if uh, people want to find you, what's the easiest way? Uh, go to fthismovie.com or search an Apple podcast for F This Movie. We have new shows every Wednesday and uh, we have written content every other day of the week. So we're a fully functioning movie website, not just a podcast. Uh, and we're at F This Movie on Twitter. And if I could add to that, be sure to subscribe to their Patreon because the bonus episodes have been well worth it. I know I've been enjoying them. So. Adam, you are co-host of a show, Reserve Seating, which is uh, available on the F This Movie YouTube channel. Can you talk just a little bit about Reserve Seating? Yeah, definitely. Um, it's a weekly show that I do with uh, my co-host, Rob Cristino, and we talk about uh, – it's just really just kind of a variety of different things. Sometimes it's topical. Sometimes it's based off of a particular movie. Um, we do theme months, so currently we're three quarters of the way into a theme month about Rob's favorite movies. Um, so our next episode is going to be about the Silence of the Lambs. But then uh, we have a whole bunch of uh, holiday goodness and end of year goodness coming up, where we're going to talk about our lumps of coal, like these kind of underrated, uh, underseen movies of 2023, and we'll talk about our favorite songs from 2023 movies and things like that. So. Um, yeah, just some good old movie related ephemera every Thursday <laughs> for you on YouTube. Awesome. And thank you. I was been lucky enough to be a guest twice on reserve seating. So thank you. I uh, always had a, always have a blast talking with you guys. So, all right, ladies and gentlemen, that was the 10th anniversary episode. Once again, I want to thank my guests today, Patrick Bromley and Adam Risky from the, uh, F this movie world, as I will call it, because like you said, Patrick, it is more than a podcast. It is a, it's a just it's a complete cinema experience in my book. So, so <laughs> gentlemen, thank you for being on the show. I appreciate it. Thank you, Adam. And thank you, Patrick. Yeah, thank, thank you, Dana. You. And my name is Dana Buckler. And thank you so much for listening.